Greetings, everyone. Welcome to D Green with Amy. I'm Amy. After adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle, my hubby Rick and I lost over 130 pounds. Now I coach others on their plant-based journey. Just test voice. Let's welcome our guest. Dr. Peter Rogers is a Stanford and Harvard-educated MD who for over 30 years has helped people optimize performance for school, sports, and health. He is an imaging-guided surgeon and neuroradiologist. He's written nutrition, medical, and study skill books. Please click like to help Be Green with Amy. Welcome, Dr. Peter Rogers. Greetings, Green Warrior, and welcome back, Dr. Rogers. Hi. We're so thrilled to have Dr. Rogers with us again. If you haven't seen the other times that he's been with us, he's been covering so many different aspects of health as it relates to a whole food plant-based lifestyle. But today, get ready to delve into the intricate world of autoimmune diseases. If you've ever wondered how your lifestyle choices might impact your immune system's delicate balance, what if the key to defending your life, your body lies in the everyday choices that you make? So today, Dr. Rogers is going to uncover the connections between diet, inflammation, and so much more related to autoimmune disease. And Dr. Rogers, you also are going to be a little while, you're going to be presenting something to us with, you have a presentation ready for us. Yes. Mm -hmm. But what we like to do, because we learn so much from you every time you come on, we like to start off with our true or false game. So that's what we're going to do. It's time for True or False on Be Green with Amy Live. Answer true or false to Amy's questions in the comments below, and Amy will ask our guest for the expert answer. Okay, Green Warrior, get ready. The first question is, and then Dr. Rogers is going to answer it after you guys type in your guess. True or false, autoimmune disease means that the body's own immune system is attacking itself like with anti antibodies. So go ahead and type in your guess. And Dr. Rogers, let's start talking about autoimmune disease and answer this question. Yeah, basically, you know, when you're born, your immune system learns how to recognize self and non-self. And there's things that can confuse that. You know, a very large percentage of your immune system is based around your intestinal tract. So if there's a disruption of your intestinal barrier, your immune system can start becoming confused. And especially when you eat an animal protein and you've got a leaky gut, that animal protein has a similar amino acid sequence. Amino acids are like uh, pearl strings uh, of a necklace, if you will. And the amino acid types of an animal protein are similar to your, your body's own. So what can happen is if you have leaky gut, increased intestinal permeability, some of that animal protein can get across that barrier. Your immune system recognizes that it's foreign, makes antibodies to it. However, because its amino acid sequence is so similar to the proteins in your cell, it can sometimes those have those antibodies cross-react to your own body. So that's called molecular mimicry, sim similar amino acid sequences with autoantibody. Auto means against self, antibody, cross-reactivity, and it reacts against yourself. So we'll go into more detail about how and why that happens, but that's the key point. Yeah, Every time you discuss the, the, the body on a molecular level, it just I'm just so fascinated by it because we have so much going on inside of ourselves. We often take it for granted. We think that we're just kind of walking around and, and 
all the systems are working, but we don't realize it's such an intricate balance. And Mother Nature has designed or our bodies to to work properly if they're in the right circumstances. And I just wanted to to see oh to acknowledge Carrie. Hi, Carrie. She's uh, Carrie's at work, but lurking. So can't chant much, but super excited. So Carrie just can't believe that uh, she caught a, a lie because she loves, in all caps, Dr. Peter Rogers. Oh, that's nice. Thank that's you. Very nice. Yes. And I, I, I am always looking forward to the times that we had with Dr. Rogers on the show. Okay. So now that we're talking about disease, let's talk about a favorite topic of Dr. Rogers and let's see what you guys have to say. Green Warrior, what do you say? True or false, conventional medicine has a 0% cure rate for chronic diseases relying on pills rather than addressing the root cause. Okay, what do you think, Green Warriors? All right, Dr. Rogers, tell us about that. Yes, that's, that is correct. In, as a matter of fact, conventional medicine defines chronic diseases as chronic because it cannot cure them. And that's one of the things that conventional medicine has a much better reputation than it deserves. In their mind's eye, people kind of think, well, gee, doctors are smart. They had to get good grades in school. They went through pre-med. So they learned a lot in pre-med. Then they learned a lot in medical school and their residency and fellowship and their clinical practice. So they're the experts of disease and treating disease. And here's a newsflash. Doctors don't know hardly anything about chronic disease. And I realize that sounds like a bizarre statement. I graduated first of my medical school class. Just so you know, I'm board certified in three fields, all right? So the reason I go through all that is because, you know, how could that be? And I'll tell you why. It's because they don't know nutrition, epidemiology, and toxicology. I can train any motivated health coach in one month to know far more than any doctor does about chronic diseases, what causes them, and how to prevent them. Because for any disease, what matters is what causes the disease. And if you want to get better, what you do is you avoid the things that cause the disease. That's how it works. And the most common causes of all these chronic diseases are problems with nutrition and toxicology. So if you learn what things to eat are good for you, what things do you, you should avoid eating, and what things are toxins that you can avoid, then you can prevent these diseases as much as that is possible. Type 2 diabetics, Roy Taylor, you know, got him to lose 30 pounds or more weight. All, virtually all of them, every single one's cured. McDougal's had the same experience. So has Nathan Pritikin, and so have many others, Walter Kempner and many others, okay? In communities where they eat plant-based, low-fat diets, like in China, let's say, before 1970, all right? You don't have any of these autoimmune disease, next to none. Same thing in other communities. When they eat low-fat, low-sodium, plant-based diets, they're not exposed to toxic chemicals that cause leaky gut. The incidence of uh, autoimmune disease is very, very minimal. And I'm glad that you talked about that because especially today that we're talking about autoimmune disease, some of these can be so elusive and so difficult to manage and probably most people don't have any hope of reversing them or if they see them that they're in their, uh, that maybe they have some family members that have had it and they may be thinking that they could also have it because it may be in their genes. They may be worried about oh, it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of where that comes from is if you look at the medical textbooks, I can tell you they're wrong on every single chapter on all the major common diseases. And they always say the same thing. Nobody knows what causes it. It's partly genetic. It's partly due to aging. Therefore, these are the recommended pills, and hopefully one can slow it down a little bit. 
which is really a whole bunch of nonsense. We know for a fact in communities where they eat low-fat diets and they don't, and they don't add uh, salt to their food, they don't have any hypertension. These communities don't have any obesity, coronary artery disease. They don't get any of this stuff, okay? And then all people say, well, what about the doctors? They studied so much in college and med school. Let me tell you something. I, I'm Like I said, I'm a triple board of doctors. I was actually trained in additional specialties, including endovascular brain surgery, okay? Interventional neuro interventional. All right. Um, I didn't finish the fellowship in that because it's being taken over by neurosurgery. But the reason I mention it is the only math I ever use is I, all, I knew all of it by fourth grade. So what I'm trying to say is all of this stuff about calculus and physics, physical chemistry, um, statistics, it's all BS. It has nothing to do with taking care of people. Okay. So it was all almost kind of a waste of time. And the chemistry they learn in college is largely inorganic chemistry or organic chemistry. You know, how do you synthesize paint? That's irrelevant to human health. So what I'm trying to say is most of their education is really a distraction. Okay. It has nothing to do with healthcare. And even in medical school, if you look at the medical students, what do they start out learning? All kinds of nonsense. They memorize tons and tons of long lists of things like all the muscle insertions and uh, origins and attachments. Okay, but that's a joke. You don't use that ever to take care of patients. Like I said, I was an imaging guided surgeon. I didn't need to th ever think that way. So what I'm trying to say is they keep them busy and they make it look like they're learning a lot, but the reality is they don't learn the most important stuff. What causes the disease and then how do you avoid the things that cause the disease? And that's why anybody who focuses, you'll be amazed at how fast you can learn about these diseases and really help people. Uh, so that and then what happens is a doc once they're done with med school residency usually they've delayed having their children delayed getting married so they're like oh time to get married time to have a kid then they got to make partner at their job so to make partner at their job when you're the junior person you have to work super long hours a lot of night calls all the weekends all the crappy shifts and then you have a kid at home you're up night taking care of the kid so what happens is they're exhausted, so they don't have any time to read. And then when you say, well, what about continuing medical education? Aren't they required to get educated every year? It's a joke. They'll go to Florida. They'll sign the attendance list. They'll go to the beach all day. They don't have to listen to a single lecture, okay? So what I'm trying to say is there is no requirement to continue medical education, just a fake one, but there's no real one, all right? Don't get me wrong. Some docs really do keep trying to get educated. You know, I try to get educated, but where I actually learn the most is whenever I have an interesting case, and then I read about it, or I discuss it with my colleagues, all right? You know, the CME is like a hassle. We do it because we have to, but usually it's all stuff that we were lectured about as residents. It's sort of like, so it's not really that useful, but we have to do it. Um, anyways, be that as it may, what I'm trying to do is explain. That's why they can't cure these diseases, because they're trained to match the yield of the pill and send a bill. And that doesn't work. So they're just like, well, what are you going to do? As long as they follow the standard of care, they get paid and they can't get sued. So that's what they do. Yeah. And it can be just so frustrating for people who are faced with some of these autoimmune conditions because some of them can really be quite debilitating and really uh, prevent people from carrying on uh, da their daily life without pain or 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 having other things to, to uh, limit their abilities to function. And then just going to these doctors who are prescribing medications that may help alleviate some symptoms, but then may cause some other reactions that, that necessitate having other medications to deal with those side effects and never really getting to the root cause of what is causing these diseases and, and perhaps helping to at least get them better on the right track for healing or perhaps in some cases even reversal. So I, I think that there are a lot of people that are tuning in today and that will be tuning in in the future that are looking for answers. And Green Warrior, if you 
or, or, or someone you love is or care about is, is having some kind of an autoimmune disease, please put that in the chat. Type in the chat, what are you here to learn about? And if you have any specific questions, by all means, put that in the chat too, because Dr. Rogers is here to try to get you some answers. Okay, so we did talk about leaky gut and um, that, that it can do things as far as help uh, or hurt things for autoimmune disease. I'm going to, I had a question here. So here's another true or false. True or false allergies can be attributed to leaky gut where increased gut permeability allows antigens like food particles to cross the gut wall and trigger immune reactions. Hmm, think about that, Green Warrior. What do you think? Dr. Rogers, tell us more about this. Yeah, when you have an abnormally leaky gut, increased gut permeability, uh, food particles that and bacterial particles, bacterial endotoxins, the bacteria themselves are getting across that barrier and they're causing activation of the immune system. You don't want that. Excess dietary sodium can also make the immune system hyperreactive. And that can lead to person having allergies. For example, I know people who've been gluten sensitive and then they became organic vegetarians primarily and that gluten uh, went away as a problem for them. Everybody's different. Some people are more intrinsically sensitive. Plus it depends on the gluten. Is it organic or not? Where is it coming from? Is it sprayed with GP, for example, you know, glycine phosphate, glyphosphate, if you want to call it that. I, and also one last thing about all this doctor stuff. The reason I tell you is not to be mean to doctors. I got tons and tons of friends that are doctors. Okay. I talk to them You're married day. to a doctor. <laughs> I'm married to a doctor who bothers me around a lot. Okay. So the reason I go through all that is because you have to know that they're very good for certain things. The emergency room is great. They're great at certain things, kidney transplants and, and a whole bunch of other things. But when it comes to chronic disease, by definition, they stink. By definition, they say, this is a chronic disease that cannot be cured, okay? So, I mean, why would you go first choice to somebody who's telling you that they could never cure your disease? And once you understand that, you can look elsewhere. For some diseases, there is no cure. There's nothing you could do. But that's, for a lot of them, there is a cure. The other thing I've seen is a lot of diseases, they become progressively worse. Initially, there's a problem that can be fixed. Eventually, there's structural damage that maybe you can't fix. For example, diabetes. If you treat it early on, lose the weight, you know, improve the diet, avoid insulin resistance, cured. Type 2 diabetes I'm referring to. But once the pancreas beta cells that produce insulin are destroyed, then, then you can't cure it anymore. It's no longer curable. So that's why you want to get going on these things the sooner the better. Uh, but, I, but it's important to know if you go to a conventional medicine doctor for high blood pressure. You're gonna get put on a blood pressure pill. They're not gonna know about eating a low fat diet, eating a low sodium diet, okay? They're usually gonna say something stupid like, try the Mediterranean diet, I've heard it's good. The Mediterranean diet's a joke, okay? It's, I call it the Antichrist diet because it pretends to save but it can't save anybody. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah, but I mean, we, we should also talk about the type two diabetes and the type one, because even if you do become dependent upon the insulin, for type two, and of course, in type one, you are dependent on the insulin. Changing your your diet and lifestyle could at least reduce the amount of insulin that you're dependent upon. Would Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. You can improve insulin sensitivity. I'm like right. confused by my webcam. You can you can improve insulin sensitivity, which makes a big difference because you'll be healthier when you decrease insulin resistance. Um, you'll not only have to take less medicine, but all your other bodily tissues will be healthier. You'll avoid a lot of problems. Right. And if you do have type, type two diabetes or type one, and you shouldn't think that it's ever too late. And also by adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle, you can also decrease your chances of getting other 
lifestyle related diseases that could further complicate your life. So don't, don't think that it's too late. It's just, you may not be able to get off the insulin, but you definitely can make some improvements. And one of the, our green warriors, uh, Diana said that my fiance is type two diabetic and has diabetic gastroparesis and now has blood in urine. Not sure what could cause this bladder infection. Maybe, but what, what I'm also going to talk about is philosophy of healing. I think that medical school also makes people stupid when it comes to disease. Let me explain what I'm talking about. What you're taught in medical school is match the ill to the pill and send a bill. That all of these diseases are different. This is a disease over here. This is just disease over here and over here. And what I'm trying to say is a better way to think of it is that everything is connected. And when you improve your overall health, you'll often kind of fix a whole bunch of problems along the way. So why might a diabetic person be sick or having problems? What I would do is try to fix the diabetes and a lot of the secondary uh, related problems and complications, there's a good chance that they're going to be minimized or go away. I can't guarantee it. I don't know how long he's had type, type 2 diabetes and how sick he is, but lots of patients have made complete recoveries once they've gone low fat, low sodium vegan. Okay. And I'm also going to talk about avoiding some toxins. So you know, for example, with, with regard to autoimmune disease, you can ballpark it. You know, I've heard different numbers. Some people say 80, 85% of patients get better once they fix the leaky gut issues. But there's also some toxins that um, are good to know about. We're going to talk about some of those things like aluminum, things like glyphosate, things like F minus in the water, that sort of stuff, as well as these estrogenic chemicals, which also distort and confuse the immune system. Yeah. Now, Diana said that she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and she's working on eating to lose the weight and, uh, and she's finding that her body pain is lessening the more she eats whole food. Fibromyalgia, what does that diagnosis mean? Okay, fibromyalgia, now that, there's a couple different ways to look at that, okay? Um, and one guy who I would recommend you, you look up is Martin Paul. The other thing too I'm gonna say about patients in my experience, most patients don't get it, okay? What I mean by don't get it is they want to take a pill so they don't have to change their behavior. And even when you talk to them about changing their behavior, they say things like, well, I'm cutting down on oil. I'm cutting down on meat. And my attitude is no, that's not good enough. No meat, not one bite. I'm like Esselstyn, you know, Old Testament. No meat, not one bite. No oil, not one drop. Thou shalt not eat meat. Thou shalt, shalt not eat oil. Thou shalt not have caffeine. And people say, well, why are you so harsh? Why are you so absolutist? Because you want to get better. Okay, all day long I see stroked out patients, demented patients, you know, disaster after disaster after disaster. And you have a chance to avoid all this stuff. I'm 60. I have zero medical problems. <laughs> I can tell you about half my patients are all younger than me and they're a train wreck. Okay. You know, and, and the typical thing people say is too, well, I know it's genetic. You know, I'm talking to a patient the other day, coronary artery disease, cancer, you know, all these problems, diabetes. And he's like, well, doc, and he goes, no, with me, it's not diet. He goes, it's genetic. I know it's genetic. I go, well, how do you know it's genetic? And he goes, well, my sister had the same thing. She had to have open heart surgery in her 50s. My brother had the same thing. He had a heart attack, had to have open heart surgery in his 50s. I said, it's not genetic. It's because you all eat the same food, okay? Get that through your head. Give yourself a chance to get better. Once you label it as genetic, what you're basically saying is there's nothing I could do. I'll just take the pill, go for the surgery. Hopefully, it'll go well. And that's a very passive, in my opinion, ignorant way to be. The smart way to be is to say, what are my chances? What can I do? What can I do? And then do all those things and go 100%. And then you've got a surprisingly good chance to get better. And the second thing, too, is you'll ask yourself, well, 
I also look at a disease and say, what are the theories of the disease? Because quite often there'll be one, two, or three theories of the disease. Sometimes it's multifactorial, the causation. So if you look at fibromyalgia, for example, one interesting theory of that disease is something called the no-oh-no theory, which means nitric oxide peroxy nitrite theory. And the guy who's popularized that is Martin Paul. And so, for example, EMF, electromagnetic fields, open up voltage-gated calcium channels on neurons. So he recommends EMF shield and he thinks can help a lot for fibromyalgia patients. There's a few other things related to that, but you, I would recommend you study Martin Paul. It's P-A-L-L -L is his last name. He's a biologist and a physicist. And he also wrote a book about uh, the treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and some related disorders. Um, and I think it's a good book. I think the guy's a genius, okay? But what I'm saying is that's one thing can help you. I've heard other theories of... Um, you know, fibromyalgia, for example, being associated with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, all right, with the idea that when you got increased intracranial pressure, some of that pressure is dissipated through the peripheral nerve roots, and that's why it can cause positional pain and whatnot, depending on the, you know, the ICP intracranial pressure at that time with the cerebral spinal fluid. So what is that about? Let's say a person's fat, right? When a person's fat, they got a big belly, pushes on their inferior vena cava. That pressure on the inferior vena cava is transmitted up to the right atrium of the heart. That's transmitted to the superior vena cava, transmitted to the brain. Venous intracranial hypertension. You've got cerebral spinal fluid being reabsorbed into the venous system. So when, the, when there's venous hypertension, it's harder to reabsorb the CSF, cerebral spinal fluid. So when the CSF pressure goes up, that can cause distortion, distension of nerve root sleeves, and pain in them. That's sort of the idiopathic intracranial hypertension theory of fibromyalgia. So I would see how things go with that. You know, could it be autoimmune? Fine. Fix leaky gut, avoid the toxic chemicals we're going to talk about here today. I would do all of these things and hopefully it's going to help. I also think a lot of nerve-related pain, like look at diabetic neuropathy. I think it's ischemic. So when you optimize blood flow, every single organ system in your body works better with optimized blood flow. What are the two most common things that ruin blood flow? High-fat diets, <laughs> excess dietary sodium, okay? So why not fix those things and see what happens? Um, and so once you start fixing everything and, and always pursue, what's the best I could do? Because once you do that, you'll start making progress, making progress, and even if you get setback, once you've gone 100%, and you know if something works or not, and give it some time. Don't just check it for two, three days. Wait about three months, okay? Um, and once you've gone down that path, I think you'd be surprised how your overall health is likely to improve. Yeah, that's really good advice because people often give up much too soon and there's so, so much benefit to this, but you really, it's, yeah, you have to just go 100%. And, and the way that I tell my clients that I coach, because sometimes food addiction plays a role and you really just have to decide what, what is the most important thing to you to have that, that temporary feeling of, of whatever that makes you feel good at that very moment or the long-term results of what's going to happen. And whenever you look at this food that you know is not good for you, you just have to think of the, the pain that you're in and that, that, that is what's happening. That's, it's, a, it's not a pleasure thing that you're going to get from it. It's going to be pain and just keep looking at the food in that way, the food that you shouldn't be having. So uh, let's do this next true or false. True or false, fiber found in plant foods plays a crucial role in guarding the gut wall while meat lacks fiber and adds cholesterol to plasma membranes. Okay, Green Warrior, what do you think? Type in your guess and Dr. Rogers, talk about that. Yeah, fiber is your friend. Fiber is the food for the good gut bacteria. 
And they take that bacteria, the, the, the bacteria take it, and they convert it into short-chain fatty acids. You'll often see that abbreviated, SCFA. Uh, and then the short-chain fatty acids, there's two carbon acetate. That goes to your liver. There's three carbon propionate. That goes to your liver. The two carbon for making even carbon number of uh, fatty acids. The three carbon ones for making the occasional odd chain uh, number of carbons in a fatty acid. But then the most important one is four carbons. That's butyrate. And that's used by the intestinal lining cells. The gut's called the enteric tract. So the enterocytes are the lining cells, single cell thick. And they take that butyrate and they use it to make tight junctions. And the tight junctions are a spot in between the cells. So imagine that these two, um, I got, let me use my greens here. I got my markers. So imagine these two greens are the, um, enterocytes. And then the blue in between them is a tight junction. They need that there. If they lose this tight junction, there'll be a gap. And then things can get in between there, like big chunks of protein that don't belong. You should normally only be able to absorb, let's say, about a tripeptide or less. That means three amino acids stuck together or less. Individual amino acid, two of them together is a dipeptide. But when the bigger chunks of protein can get through, that'll cause problem. Also, bacteria can get through there. You're going to have bacteria coming through there as well. Um, you don't want that. You'll have bacterial endotoxin, lipopolysaccharide getting through there. That's going to cause a lot of problems. So you need those tight junctions intact. And the way you maintain them is eat your fiber and then avoid, which means eat plant foods, and then avoid the, the toxins that damage the gut lining. Yeah, that's a great explanation for this. And, and as Dr. Clapper has been heard saying, your body is never not looking. So when you're thinking about going off track and, and just having this one little cheat meal or this one, oh, just this once, they all add up and your body's never not looking. So just try to keep that in mind and use that as motivation to stick to this and stay 100% so that you can find some relief from these autoimmune diseases. Okay, so our next one is... True or false, Green Warrior, what do you think? Bad bacteria associated with a diet of meat and processed food are indifferent to whether humans live or die and can erode through the mucus layer and gut wall. Okay, Green Warriors, type in your answer, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, so what I'm saying here is that humans have sort of cohabited, co-evolved, if you will, with good gut bacteria for many thousands of years. I don't know exactly how many thousands, but a lot, okay? And the point being is the bad gut bacteria have mostly been around in our guts just in recent times, the last 100 years, when people started eating all these vegetable oils and low-fiber diets. Our, our, in the past, people didn't eat that. So the point is they don't have anything in common with us. The good gut bacteria, our colon, for example, it's a good apartment for them. They want us to be healthy. They, we help each other. It's called symbiotic. We help them, they help us, okay? But the bad bacteria, my joke is, they don't give an SHIT whether we live or not, okay? They don't do anything to help us, all right? And they'll even erode through our mucus layer, our gut wall, and cause us problems. So um, it's sort of like, you know, the, the way to be healthy is just do what you're supposed to do. You know, work with Mother Nature. Don't try to trick her. Yep. That's so true. And that, that's what we have to make. We're, we're a host, right? And, and there's really more of them than they, there is of our human cells. So we really need, we're basically outnumbered. So we better invite the good ones in, right? Okay. Yep. So let's see. Our next question is... True or false... 
Leaky gut, also known as increased intestinal permeability, shares common risk factors with conditions like atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease, and hypertension. What do you think, Green Warriors? We were talking about how leaky gut has related to the autoimmune diseases. So let's see if you think that it's also related to these. Type in your answers. Okay, Dr. Rogers? Yes, so that's sort of one thing that's good is that you can kind of solve a lot of these problems all together in one fell swoop. And the reason why it works is that a low-fat, low-sodium, plant-based diet, it's intrinsically high in fiber because it is all the plants. And you'll a lot of times improve multiple issues with your health. And I used to kind of joke, I would tell this one joke, you know, about the two bulls up on a hill. There's an old bull and a young bull, and they look down in the field and go, hey, there's a bunch of cows down there. And the young bull says to the old bull, hey, you want to run down there and screw some of those cows? Uh, screw with one of those cows? And the old bull says, let's walk down there and screw all of them, okay? And so the joke of it is, by just optimizing your diet, a few things about your lifestyle, getting your sleep and whatnot, you can um, potentially cure a whole bunch of diseases. And the reason it works is it's a species-specific diet. It's what we're supposed to eat. And that's why I also joke that in some ways, a zookeeper knows more than a doctor. A zookeeper knows what it's supposed to feed. Its job is keep the chimpanzee alive, keep the gorilla alive. This is what you feed them. They will have researched that. I actually know people who do that for a living, okay? Um, and um, they'll keep the animal alive, whereas a doctor doesn't know. I can tell you, out of everything I learned, I'm triple boarded, I've been studying nonstop since I was 18 years old. I can tell you, the most important thing I ever learned was humans should eat a plant-based diet and satisfy their hunger with starch. And if they do that, they, for the most part, almost never get these diseases. Right. If you if you think about that, they zookeepers could definitely decide to feed fast food to the to the different animals, or you know, junk food or whatever, and and that they don't because their their job is to make sure that these animals are healthy. So just think about that. We all, and that's why people say diet. They associate the word diet with weight loss. It's not weight loss. That's not what diet means. Diet means what you are meant to eat to get your optimal health. And that's why we call it a plant-based diet. So it's not necessarily for weight loss. It's what we're supposed to be eating. Okay. Now we are going to get into a lot more detail about the some of the things that we're going to be talking about now, but we just want to see what the green warriors out there are thinking about these. And then we'll find out a lot more about it in, during your presentation. So green warrior, true or false, Antibiotics can contribute to leaky gut by killing both good and bad gut bacteria. Okay, type in your answer, Dr. Rogers. Yes, that's true. So basically, you can really, you know, you hear all this stuff on the internet. Oh, the microbiome, it's so complicated. There's so many different species, so much diversity, and you need to eat as many, a big variety of plant foods. I think that's all BS, just so you know, okay? A lot of these communities, we've got the longest-lived people. They don't eat that big a variety of food. I would say you should really think of it as two types. There's good bacteria, and those eat fiber, and then there's bad bacteria. They eat meat and processed food. That will work, okay? That will be effective for you. The good gut bacteria co-evolved with us. They want to keep us healthy. The bad bacteria don't care if we live or die, and they make a big mess of things. And that, that, That's what's worth knowing. And antibiotics are bad because once they kill off a lot of good gut bacteria, the bad ones can proliferate and start causing problems. Right. And sometimes, like with Lyme disease or things like that, it's necessary to have an antibiotic. So, of course, Dr. Rogers isn't suggesting that you should never have them, but it seems that a lot of doctors are giving out antibiotics for things that it's not necessary to have. So I guess you just need to 
do your due diligence and make sure that if you are going to be taking them, it should be for a good reason. Okay. So what do you, you talked about variety of plants and that, in, that you don't think that it's necessary because there are a lot of people in the plant-based world that talk about the uh, probiotics and they talk about the, the fermented foods. So what is your opinion about those things? Okay. Now I, I realize a lot of people are going to say that they're going to say, well, you should take a probiotic. My attitude will be just eat the plant food. There's your fiber. Okay. And that will feed the good gut bacteria. You got to eat, you know, every day. And over time you eat healthy food, you'll get good, good, good gut bacteria. All right. So what I'm trying to say is there's often with a typical patient, the idea is that they're never going to eat plant foods. So you have to give them all these supplements to, to help them, you know, obtain some fiber and establish good, good bacteria in the colon. And what I'm saying is eat the healthy bacteria, eat the healthy food with the fiber, and that'll be go quite a long way towards establishing good gut bacteria for it. And what I'm also saying is a lot of these populations in the blue zones and these other areas, they didn't eat that much variety. I know where this comes out. There's researchers saying, well, gee, you eat more variety. You got more variety of your gut flora. Well, you know, go ahead, fine. But I, what I'm trying to say is it's not intrinsically necessary and essential. That's not the main focus. What I'm trying to say is people only have so much energy on what they can learn and what they could do. And what I'm saying is I think that's sort of like a trivial extra added on thing. It's not the money. I mean, I could give you more than that, but I think that's enough to make the point. You want to know what matters so I can do what matters to get a good result. And there's always more information. There's always more complexity. But you run into a risk-benefit ratio. Is it worth the effort? And what I'm saying is I don't think it is. I mean, if you want to pursue all that stuff, great. You know, eat three different types of salad every day. And that's wonderful. But I'm saying you don't have to. Yeah, it's most important to completely eliminate the deleterious things that you could be adding in. And those are the things that you should, because I think some people think that, that that maybe if they had some kimchi, it would cancel out the French fries at the drive-thru that they had. And that's not necessarily true. So concentrate on going 100% and don't worry about so much about adding in all this variety is what you're saying. Okay, so here's another one. And, and a lot of this information, we're going to take an even deeper dive when Dr. Rogers continues on when he does his presentation. So true or false, Screen Warrior, what do you think? Alcohol consumption, even in small amounts, is considered healthy and does not contribute to leaky gut. Okay, type in your guess. Dr. Rogers, what do you have to say? Alcohol is toxic, okay? That whole thing about two drinks a day was all nonsense. That got recommended, and a lot of people did that. My father did that. I knew it was nonsense from the beginning, but I didn't. I wasn't able to prove it to them. But it's been shown there was something called a survivor effect. They would take former alcoholics and they would put them in the non-drinker category. Okay, so you had a lot of unhealthy people in the non-drinker category, and then they said, "Well, non-drinkers have these problems, so having one or two cups a day is healthier." It's it's BS. Alcohol is an intrinsically toxic substance. It strongly promotes fatty liver. You look at an alcoholic's brain; it's pickled and shrunk. There's nothing beneficial about alcohol at all. I recommend completely avoid it, not even have one sip of it. There's nothing good about it, you know, and it's toxic to your brain. We're going to get drunk. Isn't it fun? What? Poisoning your brain is fun? That's stupid. Yeah. Something about the word intoxicated should be, give us a clue. Okay. So here's our next true or false. Green Warrior, what do you think? Non-stick cookware such as Teflon is recommended for cooking due to its convenience. Okay, Dr. Rogers. 
I think it's a bad idea. Um, you know, there's, 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 they, they tend to be polymers of fluoride and some of that fluoride can potentially be freed up in the cooking. Uh, also people tend to put oil when they cook on these things or butter or something, and you don't need that stuff. And then you don't also, you don't even need a dishwasher in my opinion, if you don't use those things, but I, I, I don't want, it. it's like POFA. Um, I would recommend avoiding that stuff. Right. I think some people are under the impression that as long as it's, it's not scratched up and if it looks, appears to be this solid uh, entity on your pan, that it's okay, that it's only if it's scratched that maybe you should be worried about it. But what you're saying is that even if it doesn't appear to be scratched up that you should I would never eat off it and it also yeah. generates some toxic vapors i think i forget the exact details of it like you have a canary the canary in the coal mine so to speak it's toxic to the animal and i know it's toxic too if people in my family cook on that i can't be in the kitchen i'm like you know i'm kind of sensitive they go oh you're a pain in the butt you know you're hypersensitive you're obsessive compulsive <laughs> like i'm aging way better than anyone else in my family by the way i'm 60 years old i got no medical problems i don't take any pills i'm real strong i can concentrate fine all day long so all these other ones that are kind of lecturing me oh that's not normal you're obsessive compulsive they're fat and sick <laughs> well, I have found that since I have adopted this lifestyle in 2012 and have eliminated a lot of these things that are deleterious to my health, I feel like the canary in the coal mine because now when I smell perfumes and different scents of when people have air fresheners and, and different things, I, I, I even sometimes I'll get a mild headache. So where before I didn't even notice the difference. So I think that you do you finally become aware of what is happening. The veil is lifted and you do become aware of how toxic these things are that you weren't, weren't aware of in, when you were exposed to them on such a daily basis. Okay. Actually, one thing I would add to that, excuse me, we have a nose for a reason. If something smells unpleasant, it usually means it's bad for you. That's, that's surprisingly common. If something smells bad, it probably is bad for you. Now, don't get me wrong. Human waste is not as big a deal as these other chemicals. Okay. I know that smells bad, but I say this because if, for example, I'll be peeling my carrots and somebody will open the dishwasher right next to me and I'll say, don't do that because that smell, I don't like it. It's unpleasant. Like, oh, don't be so sensitive. Go over there in the other area of the kitchen, but there's no light over there. So I kind of stuck right there. But what I'm trying to say is the, the dishwasher soap, the laundry soaps, all this stuff, you should avoid these things to the extent you can. If you don't cook with oil, do you really need a dishwasher? I don't even do my clothes with laundry detergent. The reason is typical laundry detergent has got three estrogenic chemicals in it, okay? It's got like a nonolphenol, for example. Known means nine-carbon phenol. It's a phenol that means it's estrogenic, okay? It'll be put in a BPA container, bisphenol A, and it'll typically be conditioned to bisphenol plastic container with phthalates, for example. So there's three estrogenics put into your laundry detergent, right? And then if you use those softener squares in your dryer, that'd be four estrogenics. It's on your clothes all day. Your skin is primarily lipid and those estrogenics are lipid, okay? Like dissolves like. It goes right through your skin. You absorb it and it's in contact with your skin all day long. So that's just one example of easy things to avoid. And a lot of these things are all kind of minor. You know, you'll be like aware of about 30, 40 different things. Well, if you get a 30, 40% improvement in your health, that's a lot. Yes, it definitely is. And and I have def been changing things the way that I do. I, I find that, I don't know if you've tried that or looked into it, but just household vinegar is a great cleanser if you need to do some cleaning. 
and it's not as toxic as other things are. And some people even use it in the laundry to if they need if they have excessively dirty clothes. And it also helps soften the fabrics as well, so that you can avoid using fabric softener if you think that you need it. Okay, true or false, Green Warrior, what do you think? Carbonated beverages, especially those containing phosphoric acid, are harmless to the gut wall. Hmm. Okay, Dr. Rogers, tell us about that. Now, they increase the risk of leaky gut. And usually the can's going to contain aluminum. And there's usually a plastic liner on the inner surface of the can made out of BPA. And there's there's holes in it so that you get the worst of both. You get exposed to the, you know, the aluminum. You get exposed to the uh, BPA or some BPA equivalent. I, I would never drink soda pop would be my opinion. Yeah. I've, I've heard of people using it to clean a stubborn stain inside of a toilet bowl. So, and I know the dentists don't think it's very good for your teeth. So, why would it be good for something as delicate as your gut wall? Okay. True or false, Green Warrior aluminum, often used as a clarifier in municipal water, is considered toxic to the gut wall. Well, that's a lot of information in that question. So what do you think, Green Warrior? Dr. Rogers, tell us about aluminum. Aluminum is a toxic substance. In my opinion, it should not be in the water. It's called a clarifier. It can bind other things to it and make the water appear clearer, but it's toxic. It's a neurotoxin. It is toxic to your gut lining. It increases the risk of leaky gut. It is toxic to your pancreas. It causes pancreatic beta cell necrosis, increasing your risk of diabetes. Um, it's also toxic to the reproductive system. And it's part of what I would call, the, there's a, what I would describe it as, there are multiple slow poisons that are common in um, our daily exposures that if you're not aware of them, they can make you quite sick. There's F minus in the water, F minus in aluminum. They're both neurotoxins. F minus in aluminum. I mean, fluoride, of course, they're toxic to reproductive capacity. Okay. They're metabolic toxins. They're toxic to metabolism. Aluminum is a mitochondrial inhibitor. Fluoride inhibits parts of glycolysis, for example. So these things are bad for you. And then what else is subsidized? Soy. Great super estrogenic. Women take estrogenic chemicals like ethyl estradiol as birth control pills, all right? It's also real fat. It's processed with hexane, which is a neurotoxin. There's another neurotoxin in chemicals that Americans are exposed to every day, all right? Then what's the typical sweetener in processed food? High fructose corn syrup, which typically, not typically, but very often has mercury as a contaminant, okay? It's also sprayed with atrazine, which is a very powerful estrogenic, turns the uh, male frogs into female frogs. So do you see what I'm getting at? The things that are subsidized and all and essentially unavoid, unavoidable for the most part for most people, they're estrogenic towards making you infertile and they're neurotoxic towards lowering your cognitive ability, making you into a good, docile, infertile little sheep. Okay. And so what I'm saying is you, by being aware of these things, you can avoid these things. You can filter your water. Okay. To some extent, at least you can avoid these things. You can, you can avoid all these processed foods and you might as well do it otherwise you're more likely to end up fat sick and stupid hmm i'm sure it may have been a surprise about the aluminum in the municipal water to some of our green warriors green warrior true or false patients with multiple sclerosis tend to have higher aluminum concentrations in their brains compared to those without ms Okay, what do you think, Green Warrior? Dr. Rogers? 
Yes, they have done autopsy studies on the brains of multiple sclerosis patients, and they do have increased aluminum in their brains compared to non-multiple sclerosis patients, okay? And there's some people who very strongly believe that aluminum is the main cause of multiple sclerosis. I think it's relevant, but I think it's more of a secondary cause. Um, I actually think that the dietary stuff and the leaky gut and the autoimmune disease is more important. There's studies of dairy proteins um, being associated with molecular mimicry and autoantibody cross-reactivity to the myelin. That's the, the lining, the insulating material along the outer surface of the, of the brain cells, the axons and the white matter. Okay. So I think that's more important. And the reason I say that too is this guy by the name of Roy Swank. And he put patients on a no meat diet, very low in saturated fat. And he has the best results of any neurologist in the whole world. He had 34 year follow-up and 95% of his patients who had that treatment initiated early, they never lost their ADLs or activities of daily living. Those are incredible results. Lots of MS patients, they're severely debilitated or dead 10, 15 years later. Okay. He's got people 34, he even followed some of them up for 50 years. And most of them did great 50 years out. That's incredible. Okay. Um, so I think that's the most important thing. It's kind of like if you look at coronary artery disease as well, Esselstyn, you know, just by low fat, low sodium, vegan diet, he got all these patients to have no recurrent cardiovascular events. That's what you want. And the reason that's relevant is other people say, well, I think it's because of mouth bacteria from root canals and all this stuff. Well, you don't need to deal with that to prevent the atherosclerosis. So that's not the primary cause or that's not able to be sufficient in and of itself. Okay, there's other studies on the brains of multiple sclerosis patients where they found they have increased iron in their brain, okay, um, increased mercury in their brains, uh, increased something called bismuth, increased silver. And what I'm trying to say is, yes, these other heavy metals, are, they can be toxic. I think they especially increase oxidative stress, which is just a fancy way of saying you got you got like a seesaw balance between antioxidants and oxidants, okay? And these heavy metals, they tend to be oxidants. So if you just, you know, eat your plant food, you're going to get more of your antioxidants, and then avoid like meat, you know, red meat and avoid processed food that's iron fortified, that's going to load up your iron levels as well. And you're unlikely to become iron overloaded. Okay. So that's what you want to do. Very good. Thank you for that. Okay. Green Warriors, true or false, excess sodium, oral contraceptives, exposure to estrogenic chemicals are additional considerations for maintaining thyroid health. True or false, Dr. Rogers? Yeah, a couple things here is that the thyroid, for example, kind of fragile. A lot of women have thyroid problems, tons of them, all right? And now, first of all, on the topic of estrogenic chemicals, women have more thyroid problems than men, but they have a lot more autoimmune disease than men, about almost 80% autoimmune disease than women. And um, when you start distorting their estrogen level health, you run the risk of causing a lot of problems. Like I was talking about, all these estrogenic chemicals, it's unprecedented, the amount of estrogenic chemicals humans are exposed to, especially Americans, the last 50 or so years. All right. So what I would say is avoid them as best you can and let your body's intrinsic health try to manage things. For example, soy is goitrogenic. Okay. It contributes to these problems. If you look at these estrogen disrupting chemicals, EDCs are typically called estrogen or endocrine disrupting chemicals. They actually now remember calling them EDNCs endocrine, and also neurologic disrupting chemicals, because about 80% of them are also toxic to uh, brain function, cognitive function, and about 20% of them um, are goitrogenic, they're toxic to the thyroid. So you want to try to avoid these things as best you can. Um, let's see, for maintaining thyroid health. Yeah, so basically, because about 20% of estrogenic chemicals are also goitrogenic, you want to avoid them as best you can. 
Um, so I, I would leave it at that. And then also the F minus in water has a little bit of negative thyroid toxic effects. And the most common cause of the hypothyroid, let's talk about, let's say, Hashimoto's. Well, that's thought to be autoimmune disease related to leaky gut. So I would want to fix the leaky gut. There's a whole list of things that cause leaky gut. So what you want to do is avoid all those things. You know, you just have to systematically go, okay, I'll avoid this, 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 and this. And you got a good chance to prevent things from progressing. There's no guarantee that you'll get reversal, but you can at least stop progression. And some people do get reversal. So it's worth going for it. Oh, yeah. Even if you can minimize some of the symptoms, it would definitely be worth it. And you're going to dive deeper into that with your presentation, which is coming up soon. So let's talk about these estrogenic chemicals. True or false, estrogenic chemicals are common because they increase shelf life and prevent mold from growing in sunscreens, moisturizers, deodorants, cosmetics, etc. Type in your guest, Green Warrior, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, because I mean, sometimes people tell me, well, why don't you write a letter to some lobbying organization or institution and ask them to change the rules about estrogenic? I go, because it's nonsense. You go waste your time. These food companies, these uh, personal care product companies, they've got million or even billion dollar budgets. They can always buy off all the lobbies. They can buy off all the legislators. You're never going to get them to change. And all they have to do is change one little uh, substituent group on the far side of the molecule that's irrelevant to the active side of the molecule. So they're always going to be there. They're never going to change. And once you recognize that no, the, the companies are never going to change. These toxins are never going to go away. No one is going to help you. No one cares about you. The medical system does not care about you at all, okay? The legislative organizations and institutions that are supposed to protect you, they don't care about you at all. And once you realize no one cares about me, nobody's going to help me, nobody's going to save me, then you can say, okay, I need to learn this, all right? And then once you learn, it's not that complicated. So you avoid these things. So basically, there's always going to be an aromatic group. It's a six carbon ring with three double bonds. The double bonds can move around and said to resonate or conjugate. And the point being is it has very good shelf life stability. It'll stay on there like a benzene ring. It'll stay on the shelf four or five years without spoiling. So the companies like good shelf life stability. What the company wants to do is sell their product. They don't want their product having mold growing in and then gets returned to them. Okay, then the phenol group, the hydroxy group sticking off the side of that benzene ring, that makes it a phenol. That's antimicrobial, antifungal. And by preventing the growth of the fungi, the mold, the product doesn't spoil and it's got great shelf life. That's exactly what they want. But when you use that product, you're putting estrogenic chemicals on your body. You know, the classic one is the deodorant. You know, people put deodorant in their armpit, which I think is totally stupid because basically you walk in a room. What do you do? You say, hey, how you doing? Okay. You don't walk up to each other like a dog and sniff each other's armpits. It's stupid. Why do people do it? Because they were sort of they saw the older people doing it when they were young. They saw a TV commercial. And what does a typical person do? They'll often shave their armpits and then rub all this aluminum and uh, estrogenic preservatives like power benzoic acids in their armpit. And then you got shared lymphatics between your armpit and your breast. And the incidence of breast cancer in the upper outer quadrant used to be about 30%. Now it's about 60%. And it's thought to be in large part due to these deodorants. So what I'm trying to say is most of these personal care products, you don't need them. Okay. I recommend zero deodorant, for example. Uh you know, the less junk you're putting on yourself, the better. I don't even use shampoo. And I realize I don't have much hair, but I just rinse it with water. It doesn't make any difference, okay? Um, I'm a minimalist, okay? I, I think all this chemical stuff, it's overrated. People should, people are, you're scared of a spider, okay? <laughs> but you should be scared of this stuff, you know? Hmm. Okay, well, we have a question from HM. If you have multiple sclerosis and you have and you have an enhancing lesion, should starting all the 
Obagio stop the lesion from enhancing? I guess I don't know if you're familiar. Well, with if you've got enhancement of a multiple sclerosis lesion, that means that means there's a defect in the blood-brain barrier in the lesion. The implication is it's an early active lesion. You know, if you're reading neurology literature, they're going to recommend treating with different types of drugs sooner rather than later. And so I'll leave that up to the neurology literature. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is I'm not talking about an acute emergency situation when a patient is admitted to the hospital. I'm talking about the long-term course of multiple sclerosis over many decades. And in that context, this dietary stuff is super important. You know, the neurology literature, because I know the neurologists, if we ever call an enhancing lesion, they jump on and admit the patient and give them all these different medicines. Okay. So in their literature, it shows that there's an advantage to doing that. But I'm, I'm talking about the long game, the long game of MS and other diseases. Uh, if you avoid the things that cause leaky gut and some of the other causes of autoimmune disease, you'll have a much better long-term prognosis. Yeah, we had a Tracy Fedinger who came on the broadcast twice, actually. She has multiple sclerosis and she has definitely improved many of her symptoms and she believes has prolonged her health, healthy lifespan because she adopted the whole food plant-based lifestyle. And she's really done very well and surprised a lot of doctors that she's met. And so I encourage you to watch that broadcast if you're interested in learning more about what Tracy did. But I've seen many people who have had de dealings with MS and have definitely seen improvements and so I encourage you to look into that. Okay, the next one is true or false. Humans are designed to consume large amounts of sodium and exceeding this amount is not detrimental to health. True or false? Okay, Dr. Rogers. Yeah, if you looked at our ancestors, they probably ate approximately 20, 25 times more potassium than sodium. And now we've almost flipped that to the opposite. We typically eat about 10 or more times more sodium than potassium, which is detrimental. Because if you look at the, if you have a neuron, so let's say, let's say this is a neuron, my, my hand's making the shape. The neuron has a lot of ion pumps that are pumping out ions. They use about at least 50%, if not two thirds of their energy to run that, that, that ion pump. In particular, the potassium sodium ATPase pump, it's called, okay? They're usually pumping out three sodium for every two potassium brought into the cell and establishing a negative voltage grading across that plasma membrane. And it functions like a battery. That is what the cell uses to do all the work of its plasma membrane, virtually all of it. And that's also how it pumps out calcium. And you start making it difficult for the cells to run these ionic gradients when your sodium gets too high. Our kidneys are made to, to urinate out, to void out the potassium, okay, and to conserve the sodium. So you make it especially difficult for your body to maintain its proper ionic gradients when you eat lots of sodium and you have a relative deficiency of potassium. Most common dietary deficiencies are you're low in potassium, you're low in magnesium, you're low in antioxidants, you're low in nitrates, because people don't, and you're low in fiber, okay? They're all from a lack of eating plant foods. So that's what I mean by you fix a whole bunch of problems real quickly when you just eat a low fat, low sodium plant-based diet, all right? And then as far as the effect on hypertension, um, you know, you get some benefit from just overall dropping your, your, your sodium intake, but you get more benefit when you, it's the ratio, the ratio of 
let's say, potassium to sodium. The guy who wrote the best book on that was Richard Moore, MD, PhD. The name of his book was called High Blood Pressure Solution. If you're interested in blood pressure, that's the best book ever written on blood pressure. And he says you should get at least five times more potassium than sodium. I would say it seemed to me like you really want 10 times more. And that's actually easy to do. There's a lot of plant foods that have 100 times more potassium than sodium. The only exception would be if you're, you know, if you're in severe end-stage kidney failure, your body might not that be able to effectively excrete that potassium so well. So unless you're in end-stage kidney failure uh, or, you know, pretty severe kidney failure, you're probably just fine. And that's the advantage of eating a plant-based diet. The potassium and the magnesium both come from plants. They're vasodilators. And so they help keep your arteries open. They help run all your plasma membrane gradients. You need the magnesium as well. And people are often deficient in that. I meant to mention that in my most common deficiencies because you got an ATP. So what is an ATP? Adenosine triphosphate. And um, the way I would, I would draw it is let's say you've got the adenosine is right here. And then it's attached to three phosphates. And these outer two phosphates. So here's the adenosine right here, the orange. And then you've got the inner phosphate. We'll make the inner phosphate the yellow attached to the orange. And then you stick on two outer phosphates. These all got big negative charges on them. They want to break apart. That's why ATP has energy, adenosine triphosphate. Like a $20 bill in a cell, ATP. And what I'm saying is you need a magnesium. Magnesium comes over here and it sits on top of these outer phosphates and it sticks them together. It's like you know, like a bucking bronco horse says, whoa, boy, you stay, stay, stay. You don't get to go till I let you go. And then when it's ready to let go, they let that phosphate pop off. And it's such an energetic reaction to, to let those negative charges separate from each other. That useful work can be done with it. But what I'm saying is you need ATP for all you need. You need magnesium to have ATP do what it's supposed to do. And what are Americans deficient in? What I just said, magnesium is one of the most common deficiencies. And so this causes diffuse problems all throughout the body and, and uh, decreased function of their brain cells and other cells in their body. Right. But you're, you're not saying that people should just go out and buy some magnesium supplements. No, I'm saying eat the plant foods. If you look at, look, if you just type this in your computer browser, type in chlorophyll, the structure of chlorophyll, you know, the plant pigment uh, for photosynthesis. And you'll see magnesium is right in the center of it. You just eat the plant food, you get what you're supposed to get. You look at the cell wall of a plant. Individual plant cells have fiber in their cell. You get the fiber. They got a lot of potassium, <laughs> okay? The good stuff is just there in plants. Plants are just right. They just are what they are. Believe me, I'm the last guy in the world to have become a vegetarian. I was sort of a macho man wrestler when I was a young guy in college. I thought vegans were a bunch of, you know, tie-dye wearing, grateful dead, long-haired, drug-smoking, freak, wimps scum of the earth. Okay. That's what I thought when I was a young guy. And now for me to learn this as I've gotten older, well, gee, that's the smart way to eat. It's sort of a big change from how I thought when I was a young guy. Yeah. But, but that you can't deny the science and, and you're a very analytical person. And when you see the, the evidence, then you just can't deny it. You have to go along with where the evidence points and it definitely is pointing in this direction. And you get to be exposed to so many people in your work where you see a lot of patients who are suffering so much. And you know that those are the things that you want to avoid. And you've researched it carefully to know what is the best diet design to help avoid these things. And I'm glad you're helping me promote it. So Green Warriors, let's talk about fluoride. True or false, fluoride can cause autoimmune disease because it can make the immune system think the distorted protein is non-self. What is your guess for the answer, Dr. Rogers? Yeah, it's true. And there's a guy who wrote a good book about it. It was called Fluoride, the Aging Factor. The author's name is John Yomuanis. It's kind of hard to pronounce his name. I think I have the book right here. Let me see if I got the book right here. 
And Green Warriors, if you want to type in the comments, if you have any questions for Dr. Rogers, please type them in and he'll be happy to answer them and for I you. Can't, I can't find the book that fast. So, okay. but anyways, the point I'm going to say is, yeah, you, you, you don't want, you want to avoid it. Okay. It's not your friend. All the stuff about, oh, what helps your teeth. It has a minimal of any beneficial effect on your teeth. It lowers IQ. <laughs> it's toxic to the reproductive system. Okay, it's something to be avoided. It's toxic. It increases the risk of leaky gut. It's toxic to your thyroid. It really shouldn't be in the water. And even if it had a theoretical benefit to your teeth, you would put it on your teeth and then spit it out. You wouldn't be absorbing it into your gut and swallowing it. You know, it's a major ingredient in rat poison. It inhibits multiple enzymes in your glycolysis and carbohydrate metabolism. Okay, it's toxic. Yeah. Okay, but why why is it autoimmune? In yeah. addition. It can substitute out for hydrogens uh, within a protein structure and then cause a change in the protein shape such that it then can become recognized by the immune system as foreign from the body and, and thus incite a uh, autoimmune reaction. Okay, thank you for that. I, I know that I recently spoke to someone who studied to be a dental assistant and this person was really concerned about the fluoride as far as you know if it was something that was helpful or detrimental. So I think that a lot of the people in the dental field are really have been taught that fluoride is a very positive thing and they give fluoride treatments to people every on, on their visits. So this is something, yeah, you're, you're not agreeing. I wouldn't let my kid have that. No, no way. No way, Jose. Stupid. Mm, okay. Thank you for telling us about your research on that. Okay. And then uh, let's go with our next one. I think we covered some of these, so I'm not going to go. Okay, let's talk about um, organic food. So Green Warrior, what do you think? Choosing USDA certified organic food is crucial as they prohibit the use of glyphosate and other harmful herbicides promoting better overall health. True or false? What do you think, Green Warrior? Go ahead, Dr. Rogers. Yeah. So I think organic food is beneficial. And two of the biggest benefits are, well, like three of them, you avoid the GMO stuff. That's not exactly clear the significance of that. There are some bad problems with like the BT corn, the Bacillus thuringiensis corn that's associated with causing leaky gut. You avoid the glyphosate, which is also used as an antibiotic. Okay. And in Italy, they were, you know, trying to make it an antibiotic. It's toxic to a lot of your good gut bacteria. And then also the atrazine, very powerful estrogenic chemical. That's the one we talk about, turning the male frogs into females. You know, it's all toxic stuff. So those are some of the three major problems with non-organic food. Yeah. I mean, of course, it's better to eat conventional food than eating the junk food that's out there and the processed food and oh, right. other products. Yeah, I would say, you know... High quality organic food that doesn't have glyphosate on it or atrazine is certainly better for you than organic uh, stuff that 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 has some of these other chemicals on it. Because there's a lot of other bad chemicals put on organic food. Organic doesn't mean a food is good. It just means it doesn't have glyphosate, atrazine, and GMO. Right. So if you're trying to optimize your diet and your and your budget allows you and your access to it allows you, then then it would be ideal to choose the organic foods. But if you have constraints that prevent you from purchasing these foods, then you're still better off to, and to optimize your diet by avoiding the animal products and minimizing or actually eliminating the sugar oil and salt and the, all the processed foods. 
Okay. Well, that actually, was- one thing I would add to that too yeah. is because that, you know, that question comes up, well, how can a person on a tight budget still eat healthy? And what I'm saying is you want to eat starch. Starch is cheap. Starch has a long, and what is starch? Starch is a polymer of glucose. It's a plant food, polymer of glucose wrapped in fiber. And that's things like potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, beans, quinoa, oatmeal. Those things are cheap. They can store for a long time and they make you healthy. That's, that's what you want to eat. You know, fruits taste good, but fruits are a bit of a pain. They're expensive. They don't store well, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, you can't, this can be done if you, if you're on a limited budget and you have, especially if you have autoimmune disease, which is what we're talking about today, you can just go ahead and and eat a lot of those starches and that will, should definitely make a difference as long as you're not adding on the butter and the sour cream and the oils and the sugars and the salts. That's the main thing that uh, we're talking about today. Okay, well, I think we're getting we're going to have to see if there's any more questions coming up, and there may be some more coming through. And while we're, while I'm going to look at those questions, Dr. Rogers, I think we'll get ready for your presentation because now we're going to take a deeper dive, Green Warrior, into autoimmune disease, so that you can understand that when you partake in food that's deleterious to your health, a lot of things are happening in the background, deep inside, on a molecular level that you, you're not aware of. And just because maybe you can eat something and you don't feel a, a symptom or a pain right away, it doesn't mean that these foods are not acting against your the way that your body is supposed to be working and that they can slowly deteriorate your health. And you may not know that your health is being deteriorated until you get a symptom. And by that time, it may be a lot of work in order to get back on track, but you definitely can make some great changes, which Dr. Rogers is going to be talking about soon in his presentation. So did you go to the present mode and share? Yeah, yeah. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Okay. Ready? I, I, I think you need to share the window that it's on. Okay. Present screen, <laughs> share screen. Yeah. And then okay. find that window that the presentation is on. Okay. Click so share screen. If you have a question, tell us about if you have a certain autoimmune disease that you're dealing with, if you have any questions about it, or maybe someone that you care about, and maybe that's why you're here today to see. And then we can definitely present those to Dr. Rogers. Dr. Rogers, select the window that you're presenting. Okay, yeah, I think, I think I'm ready to go here. So here, here we go. Can you see it? Now we have it. Okay, Green Warriors, let's see this presentation. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about autoimmune disease. And this is you at the beginning of the map. You are here. All right. And the sooner you get going on optimizing your health, the better. In my experience, most Americans, they don't get it. They think everything's okay. They think they're doing okay. They kind of have an attitude. Well, at least I'm not as fat as my cousin. I'm doing okay. You know, my doctor is a good doctor. I'll be okay. And what I want to tell you is most Americans age very poorly. You know, in my personal experience and in my internal medicine doctor friend's experience, most of the patients over 60 are cognitively slow. They're kind of like cows. Hi, yes, thank you. You know, they're nice, but they're real mentally slow. They've lost that vitality and spark of zest and zip. And what basically happens is if you get your act together, you can do pretty well and maintain your energy, your mental smarts your sexual potency, and a lot of other things for a long time, okay? What a typical person does, they're eating a sad diet, 
And they got all kinds of problems, even by the time they're just in their 50s, you know, hypertensive, prediabetes, diabetes, impotence, gastroesophageal reflux, headaches, and all this other stuff. And they end up with drug, drug, drug for all these things. Man, see, the pill, send the bill. Then the drugs stop working, things get worse, then they got to start going for surgeries, chop, 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 takes all their money, got to go to the doctor a lot. They die prematurely, sick, cognitively slow, can't work anymore. Okay, that's the typical American. Whereas if you do all this stuff right, you got good odds on average of living to about 90, maybe longer, but probably about 90. Johnson, that works. Um, you can think of it as being like most video games. This is like Super Mario Brothers. Basically, you're the character, okay? And life is an obstacle course. You do certain things and you're rewarded with energy points. You screw up and you do stupid things and you're, you're, you suffer that some of your energy, your zip is taken away from you. In a sense, you have accelerated aging in the health game when you screw up. Okay, and then people say, well, what's the holy grail of health? I and mean, there's no one thing. It's kind of like a whole bunch of things. The best diet is very low fat. When I say very low fat, I mean, it's probably best to keep it below 10%. Okay, um, low sodium, don't add any salt to your food. You can add a little bit. Some people say, well, let them add a little bit of food, salted or food, because otherwise they won't need it. It's better to add a little bit of salt to your food than to not eat plant-based at all. Okay, but over time, you can often kind of strengthen yourself and you, you like the food if you get used to it, okay? Whole foods, you know, you don't want processed stuff. The only processed food I would eat is just single ingredient plain oatmeal, single ingredient plain quinoa. That's it, okay? 100% um, plants, preferably organic. Get your sunshine for your vitamin D, for your nitric oxide precursors being activated. Get your sleep. Try to get six to eight hours a night. Get your exercise. Push yourself. Try to push yourself at least twice a week and you know, do a lot of walking at least every day if you can. Some type of motion. Uh, maintain your social relationships, friendship. You know, have good ways to handle stress. Have a sense of purpose in your life. Religious people are happy. All that kind of stuff. All right, Americans in the last 100 years have gotten a lot fatter. They've gained about an average. The average American guy used to weigh about 148. Now he's about 198. Okay, so he gained about 50 pounds. This guy's name is Chris Knob. He's a, Chris Knob. He's a real smart uh, ophthalmologist. He's a little bit of a meat promoter, but he did some interesting things. He tracked down all this data on diet and obesity and diabetes over the course of the last 50 to 100 years, and he compared it for different countries. And the relevance is that there are certain people out there promoting one diet or another. For example, there's a real famous doctor named Lustig who, who tries to say that most of the modern problems are because of fructose and high fructose corn syrup, okay? Um, and what this guy, Chris Knopf, says, if you look at the data, the strongest correlation between obesity and diabetes is this blue line right here, vegetable oils, okay? He's a little bit of a meat promoter, and he's sort of claiming that saturated fats are not related to these problems, okay? He's also claiming that dietary sugar is not related to these problems because it doesn't correspond to the increase in obesity. The diabetes curve is exactly with the obesity curve, all right? But when you start talking about sugar, it's a little tricky because there's different types of sugars, there is glucose, the stuff in starch. That's the good stuff. Fructose is sort of called fruit sugar, but fructose in a fruit is not the same thing as fructose, uh, high fructose corn syrup. Um, so we're not going to get into all this, but just be aware of that, that these vegetable oils are much, much worse than is widely recognized. They also contribute to leaky gut. The other thing, too, is people will tell me, I've, I've talked in conversations with doctors, and they're like, well, I love junk food. I love this processed food. It tastes so good. It's perfect. I, I'm addicted to it. And what I would say is there's a reason why you're addicted to it. There's a concept called the bliss point. This was popularized in the book by Michael Moss, Salt, Sugar, Fat. 
And what these food companies do, they got giant, you know, some of them billion dollar budgets. They bring all these people in and they test them. They just adjust the amount of salt, the amount of sugar, the amount of fat, the mouthfeel of the stuff. There's a the sugar, high fructose corn syrup. And they see what makes them most want the food and want to keep eating more and more. They also add in glutamate. It could be glutamate in the form of MSG, monosodium glutamate, or MFG. The F is manufactured free glutamate. That actually ends up being more important because it turns out we've got protein receptors for glutamate in our mouths, also in other parts of our intestinal tract. Because you think about your ancestors, they, were, they weren't looking for something that tastes good. They were just trying not to starve to death. So for them to find a good protein source, glutamate is an amino acid. So when those taste buds are activated, they're also called umami taste buds. That would say reward neurotransmitters in the brain are released that say, yes, eat more of this, and then you'll be less likely to starve to death. But the food companies take advantage of our natural design, and they'll just put lots of free glutamate in there. The more you process a food, the more glutamate it has. I'll show you in the next slide what that's all about. But what I'm trying to say is you're being tricked by this bliss point research into liking foods that are toxic for you. These are just like chemical experiments. These are not real foods, okay? And it'd be like the difference in attitude. You see a pretty woman on the street corner and you say to yourself, well, gee, I would like to sleep with her, okay? But you know what? The better way to think of it is, yeah, she's got HIV and syphilis and 10 other problems and she's crazy. So you, you can train yourself to say, I don't want to go there, okay? All right, now here is a protein. It's a string of amino acids and the G stands for glutamate, okay? And the glutamate are the ones that activate your taste receptors for the umami taste receptors for this glutamate amino acid. In a protein, they're all strung together and attached to each other by peptide bonds. So what the food companies have learned is that the more they process it, they ultra pasteurize it, they use enzymatic lysis on it, hydrolysis, they separate the fat from it. The more they just do something to process it, fermentation, extraction, you'll see this all the time in food products, processed food, bulk marley extract, marley extract, etc. Uh, acid hydrolysis, ultra pasteurized. What they're doing is they're breaking apart these proteins, chopping these, these peptide bonds here so they free up the glutamate. So this is what MFG is, manufactured free glutamate. The more they free up this glutamate, the more it hits your mouth as a bolus to activate those umami taste receptors. And then your body says, yes, I like this. I want more. And you become addicted to it. So that's how they trick you. So that's why you don't want to eat processed food. It's full of these types of tricks to make you eat more of it, become addicted and end up fat and sick. All right, so here's a picture of what happened to me just real briefly. It was in my mid-30s. Uh, I was doing like two fellowships at once. I was doing a neuroradiology fellowship, and I was doing an endovascular uh, brain surgery fellowship, and I dropped the endovascular brain surgery fellowship, but I was working super long days, um, uh, and I, I would leave my house, you know, what, 6 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, and not come home till 9 o'clock at night, and then had a baby with the wife. I'm up late taking care of the baby, so I wasn't sleeping much. I got real fat. I got to weigh 220 pounds, which is really fat for me. That same year, I authored a textbook in imaging guided surgery here. This is a really good uh, publishing company. They're associated with Elsevier. Anyways, um, and then what I did was I actually moved to a new house where I had lots of spots to exercise, and I lost all the weight. I got down to a body weight of 154, which is actually too skinny for me. Um, I since lift weights and bulked up, but I'm fine. But anyways, the point I'm saying is when I was fat, conventional medicine had nothing to help me. My father had coronary artery disease. And it didn't seem like they were doing much to help him. My mother had cancer, and they did the best they could for my mom. But uh, I never, I didn't even realize that I could read about it myself and figure things out. When I was a young guy, I did what conventional medicine does: just send the patient to a specialist. Uh, my girlfriend, her mother was a great lady, really nice, uh, smart. She was a biochemist, and she got lupus. 
And, you know, so I was asked what can be done to help her. I was in med school. I didn't know any better. I'm just like, well, I'll help you find the best rheumatologist. And so they went to the best rheumatologist. She had a terrible outcome. She got lupus endocarditis of the heart. She developed blood clots, emboli that ended up giving her a stroke. She had to have her leg amputated. It was awful. Okay. And so I didn't realize then that I could have uh, read more about it and maybe helped her. What I'm trying to show you is even the people with the most education, MDs and PhDs who go to the best doctor anyone can go to, they still have crappy outcomes. Okay, here's a lady, Jacqueline Dupre, and my girlfriend and I used to like listening to her music. She played the cello, and her husband was Daniel Barenboim, you know, world-famous uh, conductor, great musicians. Okay, they're very rich and famous. They have the best doctors anybody could go to. She still has a terrible outcome and dies pretty rapidly from multiple sclerosis. So that's the point I'm making to you. Conventional medicine is not good at treating these problems, Okay. And here's a typical paper on multiple sclerosis. Antibody cross-reactivity between casein, the milk protein, milk protein, milk protein, and myelin-associated glycoprotein results in central nervous system demyelination, multiple sclerosis, okay, it's demyelination. So these are the cerebral ventricles with cerebrospinal fluid in them, the fluid that coats around the brain. It's also in the periphery. Some people describe it as being like a water helmet uh, in football with the skull being the helmet and that being the water, the cerebral spinal fluid. Anyways, these white spots are all abnormal, all right? So the ones that are kind of perpendicular to the ventricular wall, those are called Dawson's finger. It's a characteristic appearance for multiple sclerosis lesions, all right? So what I'm trying to say is uh, there's a guy by the name of Roy Swank who found if you reduce the amount of dietary saturated fat, which would mean avoid dairy and avoid meat, he had dramatically better outcomes. I mentioned him earlier. He had 34-year follow-up paper he published. He followed some patients to 50 years. He's got by far the best results of anybody. He's kind of like what Esselstyn is to coronary artery disease. That's what Roy Swank is to multiple sclerosis. Okay, and then I'll just tell you some, one of the other things that happened. Here's a friend of mine, this guy right here, and he says to me, he says, Pete, what good is it to learn all this stuff when all the people you love are already dead? And yeah, a lot of people I've loved have eventually died like my parents and stuff, uh, but you learn and you teach the younger crowd, okay? And I also show some of these knights and stuff because these are beautiful pictures. This guy, Edmund Layton, is a great artist. He's sort of a, a follow-up to the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood in England, you know, the Victorian Renaissance group of artists, if you will. So these are magnificent paintings. But what I'm going to tell you is what do I see as the role of the educated man? Is to be like Aeneas, who's carrying his father, Anchises, out of burning Troy, all right? You learn what you can, and then you teach everybody else, the younger people especially, that want to learn what you know and everybody else that wants to learn, and hopefully you help them, okay? That's what you do, all right? And hopefully you save the next person that you encounter. Okay, so what I'm showing you here is a painting reminiscent of your gut wall. You've always got some bad bacteria in your gut. They want to breach that wall, and you want to learn how to protect it, because once they breach that wall, they cause a lot of trouble. Okay, this is sort of a famous painting. This lady, Margaret Cochran Corbin, her husband had been killed and he was manning the cannon. So she volunteered to man the cannon and she helped uh, until the Hessians. These are the German mercenaries broke through at the fort there and uh, they overran the Americans in this position. And GW had made a mistake. He should have retreated sooner and he got his butt whooped in this one. But he came back later. So anyways, speaking of guarding the wall, I'm just going to give you a little scene here from a movie. This is Jack Nicholson. Okay, he was a colonel, Colonel Jessup in the movie. This is Tom Cruise, who in the movie was Lieutenant Caffey, one of the JAG guys. Okay, so he's interrogating him. And Colonel Jessup says, you want answers? And Tom Cruise, Lieutenant Caffey says, I think I'm entitled to him. Jessup, you want answers? Caffey, I want the truth. Jessup, you can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. 
Who's going to do it? You? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't like to talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on the wall. That's from a few good men. So anyways, fiber is your friend, okay? All this poop stuff, it's important. Fiber pulls water into the stool, makes it liquid and soft. So when you defecate, it comes out like a cow patty. That is good. That is normal. All right. If you don't have the fiber, your stool becomes dried out. It's dried out even on the right side of the colon. And then you'll form these dry rocks of stool called appendicoliths or, or fecaliths. Lith means stone. And they will obstruct the, the appendix at its connection to the cecum part of the colon. And the mucus glands in the distal appendix continue to secrete their mucus, but it can't get out of the appendix and get into the colon because of this obstructed fecal ball, appendicolith. So what happens is it'll pop, and that's appendicitis. Much, much more common in meat eaters and processed food eaters than in a plant eater. When you try to take a poop, Normally, with a good fiber diet, it's like a cow patty, close to being like a cow patty. But when you eat a low fiber diet, it's going to come out of there looking like a Tootsie Roll. And the problem is it takes more straining to pop out Tootsie Rolls when you defecate. The back pressure causes dilatation of the veins in your rectum. Those are called rectal hemorrhoids. Sometimes they can bleed. That would be like repeated blood on the toilet paper, for example. The back pressure is also transmitted to the sigmoid colon, and you get uh, bulges through the soft parts of the muscle wall. That's called diverticulosis. Sometimes they pop completely and then you leak stool onto the adjacent uh, abdominal fat, mesenteric fat. That's called diverticulitis. Every day in all the major Western hospitals, you get at least one admission for diverticulitis. I've seen thousands of cases of it. Okay, what else? Um, you have increased abdominal pressure. This, by the way, what am I describing to you? This is abdominal pressure syndrome. This is figured out by Dennis Burkett. He was the Irish Christian missionary surgeon who went and worked in Africa for a long time. He became in charge of epidemiology in that country for all these hospitals, over a thousand hospitals. And he looked at the patterns of diseases. And what he saw was the people eating the plant-based diets didn't get this stuff, almost never, versus the ones eating sort of the English diet, if you will, very low in fiber. Um, they had lots of these problems, okay? Um, so more hernias. And the other thing that's interesting, you get dilatation because of the back pressure on the veins in the scrotum. It's called the varicocele, and that can cause infertility. And so, like I said, I've had young guys say to me, are you telling me from being constipated I can make myself infertile? And I'm saying, yes, that is true. Okay, what else? Um, femoral vein right here uh, goes down into the leg. The back pressure is transmitted into these veins because the con continuation of the vein goes into iliac veins and fear of vena cava. So the transmission of the back pressure can cause dilatation of the leg veins, the varicose veins. And so ladies find that more interesting. Oh, they don't want varicose veins in their leg. Well, don't be, you know, eat more fiber. All right, so what else? Um, the stomach there's pressure on the top of the stomach. It can pop into the chest. This is super common. I see this every single day. These are called hiatal hernies because the opening of the diaphragm is called the hiatus. And so the stomach will pop up there, part of it. Usually it's a small hiatal hernia, but I've seen lots and lots of big ones. I mean, almost the entire stomach uh, goes up there. We even call it intrathoracic stomach. It can twist on itself, can cause a gastric valvulus. It can cause pain. It can compress the posterior part of the heart. But the most common thing it does is be associated with reflux acid and they get reflux esophagitis, typically described as GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. It causes a, a change in the 
lining cells of the uh, hiatal hernia at this point, they become a Barrett's esophagus, it's called. And it predisposes to esophageal cancer, a type of esophageal cancer called adenocarcinoma. When I was a young guy, it used to be smoker drinker cancer, squamous cell. Now it's more of a adenocarcinoma in that location. This is my mother. My mother was like the best person I ever met in my whole life. She was very funny. She died of colon cancer when she's about 70. And her oncologist did a pretty good job. They thought she was only going to live two years or at the original diagnosis, she ended up living about 11 years, 11 to 12 years. Uh, but I wish I had known because maybe if she'd have fixed all this diet stuff, she would have lived a lot longer. I've seen a lot of people, you know, like Ruth Heidrich and some of the other ones uh, who went low fat, low sodium vegan, and they're alive decades later, 30, 40 years. So I wish I had known that. Okay. My mom was really funny. She was always making cracking jokes. Uh, one thing I show you about cancers, cancer has a dividing time. And eventually, it, it just gets to the point it's detectable. But it's typically metastatic by the time you can detect it with most imaging modalities. But it is your immune system that removes it. Okay, so you want good immune function. All right. And the reason I bring that up, for example, a small cancer, one gram tumor, something like the size of a fingernail, it can release into your blood a million cancer cells in one day. You know, not all of those are going to lodge and become a so-called successful metastasis. But I'm making a point here. The reason I'm showing you this slide is that you need your immune system to remove these cancer cells. So you don't want to be damaging your immune system. All right. Now, a high fat meal, it typically animal foods and processed, animal foods have zero fiber. Uh, high fat, uh, they have zero fiber and processed food has very little fiber. They tend to induce a low-grade endotoxemia, meaning that some bacterial endotoxin, LPS from gram-negative bacteria, that means lipopolysaccharide, the typical endotoxin from a gram-positive bacteria would be something called LTA, lipotychoic acid. Some of that will get into the blood in small amounts. If you get The more leaky gut you have, the more it can get into your uh, blood. The more bacteria themselves, the bigger bacteria itself can potentially get into your blood as well. And the risk factors for uh leaky gut are very similar to the Western diet. Okay. Um, here, listen to this quote from this paper. Elevated levels of pro-inflammatory markers, dyslipidemia, hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, um, resemble obesity and advanced disease severity. And the consumption of the Western style diet were identified as the strongest risk factors. Okay. So Western diet, you also will get what's called a vicious cycle going. The increased amounts of dietary fat will cause increased release of uh, bile salts from the liver. It's an emulsifier, okay? And it, it leads to the bacteria producing more of what is called hydrogen sulfide. And that's not good because the hydrogen sulfide is damaging to the gut lining cells, the enterocytes, and it will cause them to die to some extent, enterocyte apoptosis. That means gradual cell death. Well, once you got more enterocyte apoptosis, then you get more leaky gut. So you're kind of creating a vicious cycle of colonic damage. And so that's why if you want to to get better, you got to stop doing this stuff. Okay, this is sort of the same point on this slide. Now, here's a drawing. On this side is normal. On this side is leaky gut. So let's just real quick review normal. So these are the enterocytes. Enteric tract is your gut. Enterocyte is cells of the enteric tract. Single layer of cells, lines here. You got these goblet cells. They produce a mucus, and the mucus protects your gut wall. Okay, it creates a barrier between the bacteria and your gut wall. The TJs are tight junction. So when you eat fiber, these smiley face bacteria is kind of teal colored. They use the fiber to make short chain fatty acids. You will absorb the acetate and the propionate. The butyrate, though, is used to make tight junctions. So the four carbon butyrate makes tight junction. The acetate and propionate, they get absorbed into your blood and they're going to travel up to the portal vein to the liver. OK, that's all good. Um, 
these are just a little more details. Uh, but what you need to know is the good gut bacteria, they keep their distance from the enterocytes. They do their job in the outer mucus layer. They make their short chain fatty acids. Everything is good. All right. Now, all these little words here, these are all things that cause leaky gut. If you've got an autoimmune disease, what I would do if it were me is I would try to avoid these things as best I could. So you don't want to be taking antibiotics unless you really, really need them. You don't want any, any dietary oils, zero, none, including olive oil. Olive oil is toxic too. They're all bad, okay? They're all processed chemicals. I would avoid the meats, saturated fats, all the dairy. And here's a whole bunch of other things. Alcohol, emulsifiers and processed foods. They're things that are amphiphilic, amphipathic, if you will, meaning that they're partly polar, partly nonpolar. The point being is they can pull things out of aqueous solution into a more of a lipophilic solution, if you will. And there are all the processed foods because what they do is they enable them to mix water-like things with fat-like things and help the food maintain its appearance, consistency, and texture. So they're ubiquitous in processed foods. And here's a whole bunch of other ones. The BT corn, bacillus thuriginous corn that can damage uh, the gut lining cells. It's what it does to insects. It's like an insecticide. That's why they put it in the corn. And then you eat it and you expose yourself to that stuff. We talk about how the soaps will have multiple estrogenics in them. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of other ones. You can read through those yourself if you want. Here's what happens. When you don't have the dietary fiber, you can't make these tight junctions. So you get a gap in the tight junction. And now LPS or LTA, the bacterial endotoxins, can get across that wall. They can activate something called TLR, toll-like receptor. They just initiate an inflammatory response. They can get into the blood, and they cause blood clotting. You don't want abnormal blood clotting. Most people, hardly anybody dies of bleeding. You know, when you watch TV, you see somebody bleed. Okay, fine. But in real life, people don't die from bleeding hardly ever. Okay. If somebody dies from bleeding, it'll be, you know, shown in conferences, a big exciting case. All day long, tons and tons of people, they die from clotting. Clots plug up the arteries in your brain. That's a stroke. They plug up the artery in your heart. That's a heart attack. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is this LPS gets in your blood. It causes all kinds of problems with clotting. And when you've got a big enough gap in that gut wall, here's the uh, bad bacteria. I drew them with, you know, like the, a big frown on their face and the angry eyebrows. They cause a lot of problems in your body. They can even be dormant in your blood. We'll talk about that a little later. Okay. In addition, these big gaps in the tight junctions allow protein chunks to get through here. And this protein coming from an animal, it'll have a sequence of amino acids very similar to the human sequence of amino acids. And you'll form antibodies to it. And when you form antibodies to it, you can get what is called molecular mimicry, that its sequence mimics that of the human proteins, and then autoantibody cross-reactivity, it will react with something similar in your body. So, for example, if that protein is something from the thyroid, it might cross-react and cause Hashimoto's thyroiditis or Grave's thyroiditis, okay? hyperthyrotoxicosis, okay, or it can affect other parts of their body. It can damage just the gut lining and cause things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, it can, it can attack all kinds of parts of the body cause lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. There's a whole bunch of, there's about a hundred different autoimmune diseases. There's a lot of them. Okay. But this, this slide right here is perhaps the most important slide of the whole talk and going through this list of avoiding things that cause leaky gut, uh, could really potentially help a person. So this is just explaining them in a little more detail. Just eating meat itself. You can get potentially these things called these sialic acids and cause xenosialitis. We don't got time to go in that today, but that's just one more bad thing a meat does to promote autoimmune diseases. Okay. Um, let's see. A lot of these things we already talked about. The chlorine in the water also uh, is can be toxic to your good gut bacteria. That's why it's nice to have a carbon water filter at your house. You remove the chlorine as well, and so it has less of an effect on your uh, 
gut bacteria. You need a reverse osmosis. So there might be other ways. You can remove distillation. Distillation is a pain in the butt. I don't know if ion exchange can remove it. That's sort of a new thing. I don't have experience with ion exchange, but that might be a reasonable thing for some people. Okay. Um, we talked about nonstick cookware. Um, psychological stress can cause some immune suppression because of the cortisol suppresses the immune system. It can also cause, you know, gut vasoconstriction, splanchnic vasoconstriction, meaning a lack of blood supply to the gut, which can increase the risk of leaky gut. And then there's stress equivalents, things like being sleep deprived, drinking caffeine, you know, coffee, tea. I don't recommend either one of those things. I know a lot of people think they're good. I do not uh, for multiple reasons. Okay. But basically, these are all stress and stress equivalents. Um, it might be a wise move. Avoid all the gluten stuff too. There's different types of gluten and things like in wheat and uh, rye and whatnot. And some of this gluten problems, look at the name, gluten. Glue as in the first three letters are glutamate. Uh, gluten intrinsically has a very high amount of um, glutamate uh, amino acids. And then you process it like these processed foods and you're getting a lot of free glutamate there, okay? Um, it can have 25 to 30% is what I've read of its amino acids can be glutamates. Um, sort of, I've seen some authors say, used to say 30, now they say 25. So 25% is, is, is probably more accurate. That's still a fourth of the amino acids being gluten. That's an extraordinarily high amount. Casein is very high, the milk protein, about 20%. Glutamate, amino acids, uh, soy is about 19%, I've read. And whey protein, about 15%. I, I avoid all that stuff. I think soy is a toxic substance, okay? I know it gets a lot of hype. All the commercial foods have tons and tons of industry-sponsored studies, and so people end up thinking that they're healthy, but I think they're just industry-funded. I think if you look at the studies from before industry funding, you'll see that they're not a healthy thing, and you would. my advice would be avoid them. Uh, that's what I would do. Okay, we talked about carbonated beverages. Titanium dioxide is like a whitener and a lot of pills and other things. I would avoid that. Okay. Um, oh, this is just some jokes. If you want to read them, you know, like I made this one joke, you know, like nowadays they do fecal transplants. They'll take the feces of one person and they'll inject them up somebody's butt uh, into another person to treat leaky gut. Okay. To get the good gut bacteria into their colon. Okay. So I made this joke. I said, well, if a wife is suffering from leaky gut, maybe she should just kiss her husband's ass and take SHIT from them. And then this one lady got offended. She goes, oh, that's patriarchal and misogynist. I go, it's just a joke, okay? Give me a break, you know? Uh, all right, so here I was going to the hospital. And what I'm saying is people tend to think that, you know, it's like going on a pilgrimage. Because I see it. If you go to any, I've worked at tons of hospitals. Every Western hospital in the Western world, in the morning, it's like a river of people flows into the hospital. And most of them are overweight, diabetic, and hypertensive and have other Western diseases. And they, I see them talking to each other too. Like it's a little bit of an adventure. I went and had this test today and this test today. It's sort of like everybody's comfortable with the idea of go to the hospital, get a checkup, get a test, go for screening, do this, 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 and this, you know, but how many of them want to go low fat vegan? One out of a hundred thousand or something. It's really small. One out of 10,000. And in my opinion, it's kind of stupid. You go to a hospital. Well, I'll tell you what you're going to get. You're going to get a bunch of medical tests, okay? Um, and don't get me wrong, sometimes you need that, okay? But most of the people, what they really ought to do is focus on getting their health better rather than testing, 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 testing. And then what I was basically saying about conventional medicine, unless you know nutrition, epidemiology, and toxicology, in terms of helping people with chronic health diseases, you're a Lilliputian, okay? You can never be more than a Lilliputian. And I don't care if you're the head of internal medicine at Harvard, okay? <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. I've seen I've seen the recommended diet coming out of the Harvard School of Public Health. It's ridiculous. It's a joke. It's worse than the Mediterranean diet. Okay, so what I'm saying is don't be a Lilliputian. Become a Gulliver. 
learn nutrition, epidemiology, and toxicology. It's not that hard. Okay, and if you go to the medical system, what you're going to do is you're going to end up with a tube up your butt for colonoscopy. You're going to have one down your throat for the esophagoscopy and 10 other tests, okay? It can always do more invasive tests. It can always take more blood from you. It can always take all your money and bankrupt you and trap you into thinking you're sick. All these screening studies, People worry about some little lung micronodule, some thyroid nodule, some kidney cyst or liver cyst versus unidentified low-density lesion, recommend follow-up. When the thing they none of these diagnostic tests will cure you. Sometimes you need to make a diagnosis and all these tests are important. But most of the time, everybody's got the same problems, and what they need to do is the same thing: optimize their diet, their lifestyle, and all this stuff, and then see what happens. So it's like everybody wants to go for the pilgrimage to the hospital and get all these tests and, you know, but almost nobody wants this diet. I, I remember I did a surgical internship. I would consent patients, craniotomy. Oh, sure, doc, where do I sign? Open heart surgery. Oh, sure, where do I sign? Okay, chemotherapy. Oh, sure, where do I sign? And then you tell them, well, I want you to go vegan. Oh, no, I'm not ready for that. All right, so aluminum causes leaky gut. It's toxic to the gut lining. Okay, here's just a picture of uh, some of the damage aluminum causes to the gut lining cells. That's another reason why you'd want to filter your water, uh, avoid foods that you think might have aluminum, don't use aluminum cookware, don't scratch your metal container with um, like a metal spoon because you can, because typically a stainless steel pot will have stainless steel in contact with the food, but aluminum in the center of the cookware to equalize the heating uniformly. And what I'm saying is, and I have some relatives, they'll be trying to scoop stuff out with a metal spoon and I'll tell them don't do that and then they'll say, Oh, well, get out of the kitchen or you I won't cook for you. So um, I have a couple of different relatives who sometimes cook for me and they don't like me bugging them. I say, use a wooden spoon. Okay, aluminum in brain tissue. Yeah, they, they increase aluminum concentrated in the brains of multiple sclerosis patients. This is a way that aluminum gets into the air more. Yeah, I think you can figure that one out for yourself. It's not good. Okay, um, dairy dramatically increases MS. Roy Swank, by the way, He's the big pioneer guy we talk about, neurologist with, with MS. He noticed in Norway where they had dairy in the center of Norway, tons of MS. Whereas in the periphery, the coastal areas where they didn't have much dairy, very little MS. Okay, here's another paper about uh, milk proteins being associated with uh, damaging the myelin, the, the insulation material in the brain. Oh, here's, here's Roy Swank's book. Okay, he's dead now. He lived over 90 and he was a genius guy. The Multiple Sclerosis book. It's a good book. Okay, the biggest thing is he reduced dietary saturated fat. Oh, here's one study where he followed his patients, uh, 150 patients followed for over 34 years, okay? And I think like about 90 plus percent of them, they maintain all their ADLs, activities of diet of uh, daily living, which is amazing. The higher the amount of saturated fat they ate, number of cases, and here's calories as a percent of total, fat calories, that means saturated fat, the more MS they had. So it didn't take a big increase in sat fat for a dramatic worsening of MS, Okay, intravascular aggregation. So what he basically showed too is when you eat a high-fat diet, your red blood cells stick together. You can call it blood sludge. You can call it Rouleau formation. And he felt that this was causing hypoxia, lack of oxygen delivery at the blood-brain barrier and damaging the blood-brain barrier, thus leading to increased permeability of the blood-brain barrier, thus making it easier for the autoantibodies to cross that blood-brain barrier and get into the brain parenchyma and destroy the myelin, coating the neurons, thus causing multiple sclerosis. Okay. That's the Roy Swank theory of multiple sclerosis. And I think he's probably right. I think there's more to it than that, but I think he's right. I do think those other things we talked about contribute to causation as well. Um, here's normal blood in a test tube. You see this in the movie Game Changers that it's transparent. You can read the letters on a on some newsprint behind it. Whereas when you get the fat in there, it becomes opaque. So you can 
visibly see the fat in the blood and it's sticking things together. This is the matocrit, the red cells at the bottom, the buffy coat uh, is the WBCs, and that's the plasma. Okay, so here's the red blood cells sticking together. And this is called Rouleau formation, it means stack of coins in French. So normally, red blood cells about five microns, capillaries, I'm sorry, red blood cells about seven microns in diameter, capillaries about five microns. It has to bend a little bit to get through the smaller capillary. And the relevance is that when you've got something sticking these RBCs together, so a bridging molecule could be LDL cholesterol, it could be the clotting protein fibrinogen, it could be uric acid, it could be an IgM antibody, for example. All of those things can cause the blood cells to stick together. This is called a rouleau. And it's like, I think of it being like a multi-triple-decker, quadruple-decker submarine sandwich. Well, you can imagine it's going to be harder to push that through a capillary. So what happens is the blood pressure has to go up. So that's why high fat causes um, hypertension. And then the sodium causes this vessel to constrict, meaning to narrow its diameter. Vasoconstriction is the medical word. So simultaneous high fat meal, you're making your blood thick like a milkshake instead of like water. Combined with vasoconstriction, you're decreasing the diameter of your arteries. It's a screw job. It causes hypertension. Oh, here's this one article by Roy Swank. He did a whole bunch of experiments where he measured the oxygen in the, in the tissue after eating a high-fat meal. So the available oxygen, for example, in a hamster brain was studied, okay? And he says, this produced significant reductions in the available oxygen to the tissues. And this was due primarily to the amount of saturated fat in the lipid feeding. So basically, you decrease oxygen delivery to tissue, including your brain, when you eat high-fat meals. And that can be, in this case, he felt saturated fat was the main problem, but it's also been shown to be a problem with uh, unsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fats, like the omega-6 cooking oils in particular. Okay, this is just one slide showing diabetes-related advanced glycation end products, AGEs. And so the typical story is you eat high-fat meal. It causes a backup of mitochondrial electron transport, and then that leads to a backup of Krebs cycle. That leads to a backup of glycolysis, especially at this enzyme right here, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase. And so the, the uh, reactants like glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, they accumulate, and then you run side reactions. Typical one is MGO. You, need, you don't need to know all the things I'm saying here. I'm just giving you an overview of what, where advanced glycation end products come from. They come from diabetes. And this one, MGO, methylglyoxal, it'll glycate things inside the cell. It'll go out into the blood, glycate things outside the cell, extracellular matrix. It'll glycate hemoglobin. Um, and that's what hemoglobin A1C is as an indicator. The higher the blood glucose, the more glycation you get with that. So that's a little bit different. But the point I'm trying to say, you also get advanced glycation end products from diet. If you're eating meat and high-fat foods, once they glycate something, they bind to a protein, they can damage the protein, they can distort it, and it can become something called a DAMPS, D-A-M-P-S, Damage Associated Molecular Pattern, okay? Your immune system recognizes PAMPS, P-A-M-P-S, Pathogen Associated Molecular Pattern. That's how it tells something is foreign and it should be destroyed by the immune system. And what I'm saying here is when you distort the shape of a protein, you confuse your immune system. You can distort the protein by ingesting a toxin like fluoride or by glycating something. Your immune system might then recognize it as foreign as a problem, either damaged material to be removed or uh, foreign infection-related material to be destroyed, okay? So you can incite autoimmune disease by doing that, okay? All right, now a little bit on estrogenic chemicals. Here's the cholesterol backbone. There's four cyclic rings, okay? The A ring, B ring, C ring, and D ring, all right? Um, when you put three double bonds on this one right here in the A ring, then it becomes like a benzene ring. It's also called an aromatic ring. It actually smells good, even though it's not good for your health. 
And then this is a hydroxyl group right here, also sometimes called an alcohol group. This is antimicrobial. The resonating, conjugating three double bonds leads to good shelf life. So it's a great preservative. This part right here is called the phenol, phenol. And that's why that's in everything. And it's never going to change. This, by the way, is estradiol, estrogen, di as in two all groups, two alcohol groups, OH, OH, or hydroxyl groups. Same thing for our purposes. All right. So, and here's what I meant by this is never, ever going to go away. Here's bisphenol A, BPA. So bis means two, and there's two phenols. So there's a phenol group here, meaning a you know benzene ring with a hydroxyl group on it, benzene ring with a hydroxyl group on it. This means the, that the two things are not touching each other. Okay, so anyways, here in the middle, you've got just a couple carbons. Whoop-de-doo. Well, guess what? People said, oh, BPA is bad. We want it to be banned. The company said, okay, sure, fine. We'll ban it. We'll make you happy. We want, we want safety. We'll ban it. They just put a sulfate group in the middle. Whoop-de-doo. It doesn't matter. The point it doesn't matter is you still got a phenol group on the end, and they can always do this. They, they've got a thousand different ways they could do this. So it's never going to go away. All right, now here is your digestion. Normally, what happens with your body when you have elevated estrogen levels, they're excreted through the liver. The liver takes them and it puts them through, you know, phase one, phase two detox. It'll hydroxylate it to make it more water soluble. Then it'll conjugate it. This is called glucuronidated. All that's just a fancy way of saying is it makes it more soluble. Bile is actually more like water than people realize, even though it's got some fatty materials in it. Okay. So anyways, the bile salts and other things in it. But the point I'm saying is it'll conjugate your estrogens. Glucuronic acid, think of it as being like a glucose with a carboxylic acid on there. That's an oversimplification, but it's good enough for our purposes. Anyways, here's the E for estrogen. Here's the glucuronic acid excreted into the bile, goes into your gut, and normally we defecate that out of our butts, and that lowers our estrogen level, and then everything is good. But here's what happens. When you've got the bad gut bacteria, they have more of an enzyme called glucuronidase. So glucuronidase, to remove, it removes the glucuronic acid. So here's your estrogen with the glucuronic acid, the bad bacteria with their glucuronidase. They cut this bond here. So now the estrogen is freed up from the glucuronic acid conjugation. So the estrogen is reabsorbed into your body. And that's why um, people with um, low-fiber diets that eat a lot of meat and processed foods, they end up with these bad bacteria, which causes their estrogen levels to go up. And I can tell you, I know women who've told me every single woman in their family had to get a hysterectomy before the age of 35 because they had fibroids, all right? Well, this is how you get fibroids, okay? When you got high estrogen levels, it stimulates growth of the fibroids. It's a benign tumor in the uterus. By the way, men have a prostate, which is sort of like a uterus equivalent in terms of its hormonal sensitivity. So men in Western countries tend to get big prostates and they have to wake up extra times at night to go pee. And I actually have a little bit of that. Not that bad. And guess what? Since I became a vegetarian, it hasn't progressed at all, okay, which was many years ago. All right. Um, I wish I'd gone vegan many years ago, but I didn't know. All right. So anyways, what I'm saying is if a woman... Uh, keeps eating this way, processed food and um, meat, they end up having higher estrogen levels, increasing the risk of fibroids, increasing their risk of breast cancer. And also, when they get, to, if they get a hysterectomy at a young age, below before age 35, they no longer get that monthly loss of blood. It's really like a therapeutic phlebotomy. And then they have higher risk of hypertension and a higher risk of all the, all the Western diseases, coronary artery disease, stroke, congestive heart failure, you name it. Mayo Clinic is a study of over 2,000 patients with this problem, okay? Uh, so that's another reason why you want a water filter, okay? You have a water filter to remove estrogenic chemicals, then you want to eat the fiber plant food so you avoid all this stuff. And what I'm trying to say is these are dramatic things a woman could do to greatly increase her health. Okay, so what happens 
when you got leaky gut. So when you got leaky gut, you're absorbing bacteria into your blood and you're also absorbing bacterial endotoxins, LPS from the gram negatives bacteria. That's just a stain that's used to differentiate types of bacteria, gram negative and gram positive. Okay. Those are the two main categories of bacteria based on how they stain. It's a pretty standard lab test. Okay. And LTA, lipotychoic acid from the gram positive bacteria, those get into the blood and they're bad. They predispose to the formation of blood clots. They make people more likely to form blood clots, which means increased risk of a heart attack and a stroke. Normal fibrinogen, it's a clotting protein. It's also a stress protein. When a person is stressed out, they get released of what are called acute phase reactants from the liver, and that includes fibrinogen, the clotting protein. Normally, it's shaped here like a slinky. It has hydrogen bonds that help hold itself together. Those are intra, I-N-T-R-A, intramolecular, and it's shaped like a cylinder, okay? versus when it's exposed to LPS and LTA, they change the, the primary protein shape of it into something called beta-pleated sheet. Instead of being like a cylinder, like a slinky, it become flat like pieces of paper and they can stack up on each other. They can form hydrogen bonds in between different molecules. And this stacking can um, lead to severe blood clotting that's hard to lyse. So it can increase your risk of uh, problems. The big researchers on this are the English guy, Douglas Kell, and the South African lady, um, Etheresia Pretorius, and they worked together. They did what I would consider Nobel Prize research. Okay, the body sequesters iron normally. It prevents bacterial reactivation in our blood. Just like we can't walk across 100 miles of desert because we need water, bacteria cannot travel, let's say, from outside of an eggshell to the yolk because there's no uh, iron in here for them. And what I mean by that is an equivalent to humans is we sequester iron out of our blood and our cells so that bacteria can't get their hands on it and grow. So a normal eggshell has permeability, um, including the bacteria of its shell, and they can get into the outer part of the egg white, but they can't get to the yolk because there's no iron for them to use to grow to work their way to it. And so typically Westerners, you know, men after age of 20, when they stop growing, a woman after they hit menopause, they start becoming iron overloaded. And when that iron gets free from its binding site, so normally you got ways to bind it. You bind it in the blood to transfer, and that's a transporting protein for iron. It's like a kayak, two little pieces of iron in each little kayak boat. Um, you store it inside of cells in ferritin, and this one can hold like 4,500 molecules of iron, okay? And you don't want this stuff, non-transferrin bound iron, because iron is like a fire. I think Eugene Weinberg was the guy who first said that. If you have it in your fireplace, it is a good thing. If you have it in your stove, it's a good thing. But anywhere else, it's a bad thing. And that's what iron is. Um, it's a transitional metal. It has a variable valence, most commonly 2 plus, Fe2 plus, Fe3 plus. And in changing from Fe2 plus to Fe3 plus, it gives off electrons that can be used to form free radicals, reactive oxygen species that cause a lot of damage in the body. Okay, here's an example of it. Okay, it's called the Fenton reaction. You can remember that because Fe is like the abbreviation for iron in Latin, ferrous, like rust. Okay, so it can cycle. It's called ferrous redox cycling, Fe2 plus to Fe3 plus, Fe2 plus to Fe3 plus. And it gives off an electron during this process, and that can form these, these hydroxyl radicals that initiate chain reactions, especially in lipids. That's called lipid peroxidation. And they do a tremendous amount of damage to lipid membranes. They can also damage DNA and protein. So anyways, Becoming iron overloaded can damage tissues. This is also called oxidative stress when these oxidants outnumber the antioxidants and they'll cause tissue damage. So you don't want to be iron overloaded. What do you do? For example, what do I do? Uh, when I was young, I didn't know any better. So I used to eat all these iron fortified cereals. I thought that would make me a big, strong wrestler. And I was a little bit iron overloaded. So I donated some blood and now I avoid all this stuff. And every time I go to do for a blood draw, I'll just have them pull off a couple extra tubes and I'm gradually getting my ferritin down. I think ideally it's probably good to have your ferritin like in the ballpark of 30 to 80. Um, mine was previously in the mid 200s. Now it's about 130. 
of gotten it down. I wish I had known that sooner. Okay. I went to the grocery store and it was like almost all the toothpaste had F minus in it. I couldn't believe it. It's like I've known back since the 1980s, you know, that F minus was a disaster for health. But most people still don't know that. Almost all the toothpaste have it in there and they brag about it as if it was something to be proud of, which made me kind of sad that the average American really doesn't know like almost anything about health. Okay, here's F minus. It's a free radical, meaning that there's an unpaired electron in its outer orbital. You really want what is called an octet of eight. It has seven electrons. And because of that, it's super hyper reactive. It really wants to grab an electron. This is what I meant, this drawing of how uh, fluoride F minus can substitute for one of these hydrogens and it'll distort these bonds within the protein. This would be a protein where these parts of the protein are held together by the hydrogen bonds in there. But once F minus attaches, it'll distort these bonds and it'll distort the shape of the protein and the protein um, can become recognized as a PAMPS or a DAMPS. So PAMPS is pathogen-associated molecular patterns to activate the immune system, um, or, or you may be called a DAMPS, uh, damage-associated molecular patterns. And again, these can potentially activate the immune system and incite autoimmune disease. Now here is glyphosate. Some people say, well, it should be, glyph it be glyphosate. Well, I like to call it glyphosate. Even really be better to call it glycine phosphate. And what this means is, here's amino acid glycine. It's the smallest amino acid. All amino acids are kind of shaped a little bit like a crucifix, if you will, in the sense that you have the central alpha carbon, okay? The H on top, like a head, that is always there, one hydrogen. And then it's called an amino because there's an amino group like on one arm. And it's called an acid because there's a fatty acid on the other arm. And then what would be the legs of a person coming down? That's called the R group, and that is variable. In glycine, it's the smallest possible R group. It's just a hydrogen, okay? So glyphosate is pretty much like a glycine with an extra phosphate on there. There's a little more to it than that, but given the fact you got the carboxylic acid here, a nitrogen here, a hydrogen here, and a hydrogen here, that's very much like a glycine. The relevance is... According to the like most famous researcher in the world who studies it, a lady named Dr. Senef, S-E-N-E-F-F, -E this can substitute for glycine in our body's own proteins and distort their shape and cause a lot of damage. So it's like a Trojan horse. It sneaks in pretending it's something good, but it's actually something bad. And a typical example would be collagen. Collagen is the most common protein in your blood, and every third residue is typically a glycine. Okay. And what she's claiming from her research is that GP, glyphosate, glycine phosphate, uh, glyphosate. It's it's um, substituting in for these glycines and it's distorting the shape of these proteins and making them dysfunctional. Okay. Oops. Oh, I got to get back to my talk here. Okay. Oh, how did I get out of my talk? Here, here we go. All right. So now here's where it gets a little interesting. Normally when you run a reaction, you've got the initial materials, the substrate. And then what an enzyme does is it lowers the activation energy to form a product. Okay, if you don't have an enzyme, you'll hardly ever run the reaction because it takes too much energy to overcome the transition phase. Now, the way an enzyme works, you know, the first thing people learn is that it's like a lock and a key, all right? And then you'll learn, well, the way that the substrate fits into the enzyme is the way a hand fits in the glove. This is called induced fit. It changes the shape a little bit. Okay, but a better model is, let's see if I got a picture of it. A better model is that not only do you have those factors going in, what the enzyme does is it holds the reactants into a configuration where they will interact with each other. It has to be just the right size and just the right shape to make them favorably interact. Like right here, this enzyme actosite would be too big. So this green thing can't get into this red thing. All right. Here it's just right. And the green thing gets into the red thing and the reaction occurs. All right. And what I'm trying to say is 
a lot of enzyme acocytes, they're really almost like a vacuum or like a magnet. Like this one will have, let's say, a carboxylic acid projecting into the center. And this might be good in this case. This negative charge will attract a positively charged reactant to come into the active site. That will be what you want in that context, okay? But here's the problem. If glyphosate switches out for glycine in the active site, it can distort the shape of the active site and the enzyme will no longer be functioning. This is from the work of Dr. Seneff. She's the most famous writer on this subject. And so what I'm saying is that this was supposed to be the active site with a glycine in there and just a hydrogen on its side group. And instead you got a glyphosate with a phosphate in there and this big negative charge that you didn't want, it's going to ruin the function of this enzyme. You get it? Because whatever wanted to come in here, a neutral molecule, for example, or let's say a negatively charged molecule, it's going to be blocked by the negative charge in the bulk of the phosphate. So that's how it damages enzymes. And that can lead to autoimmune problems when you when when something's shape is changed um, and its functions change, it doesn't bind to what it's supposed to, et cetera. Okay. Another thing is if you have a foreign thing in your body, breast implants. So this lady, this is, I forget her name. Uh, this is her, Laura Miles. She gave a great Ted talk on breast implant illness. She had had one and had problems with it. I think she's a physician. Okay. Now here's another very famous lady, Ruth Heidrich, PhD. She's super famous, multiple decades survivor of breast cancer, triathlon world champion and marathon champion runner, super nice lady. I actually know her. I've talked to her. She's super nice, wonderful lady. She um, had a problem with, she got breast implants after her breast cancer surgery. And then, you know, the breast uh, implant developed a rupture and it started leaking silicone and that caused her a lot of side effects. She wrote an entire book about it. This is her book. Okay. So here would be a breast implant. Here would be leaked silicone that can get into the body. The silicone can travel to far away parts of the body and it can cause all kinds of side effects. So we don't have time to get into this, but just so you've heard of it, it's a real thing. So a woman should really think very carefully before deciding to get a breast implant. They're much more dangerous than is widely recognized. These are just some MRI examples of how they look. Um, we're almost done here. One thing I'll show you is the concept of volatile organic compounds. Some of these air pollution compounds can be rather toxic. VOC means volatile organic compound. A lot of times you can think of that as something that transitions from being liquid to solid, like paint when it dries, okay? And there's, there's a lot of chemicals like that, glues. Um, and there's other substances that are similar. They can cause oxidative stress in our body, and that oxidative stress can lead to a series of reactions that will damage our tissue. When the tissue is damaged, like again, distort the shape of a protein. If it's outside a cell, then it's exposed to the immune system, and that can cause uh, autoantibodies that destroy our own tissues. And this is just an example of some of the diseases that can sometimes be caused by these problems. So I, the reason I went through that stuff was just to make the point that it's not all leaky gut. Leaky gut's the main thing, and if you fix leaky gut, most autoimmune patients, it is thought, will have a dramatic improvement from that. But some cases they don't. So what I'm saying is if somebody is not responding as well as was hoped and they've done everything they could to fix leaky gut, they should also consider these other things that might be contributing to their symptoms, okay? All right, here's just what I call the Spartan Vegan Pyramid. So this is sort of my dietary pyramid, which is basically pretty much the same as other low-fat, you know, very much like the Esselstyn diet. Um, you eat starches to satisfy your hunger because they satisfy your hunger better than, than fruits do. They're cheap. They store a long time. Eat a little bit of veggies. Your bulk of your calories should be coming from your starches. Maintain your friendships. Lower your stress. Get your exercise. Get your sleep. Get your sunshines. Have a sense of purpose. Religion often helps people. Religious people are a lot healthier. And in the end, you kind of end up being like Adam and Eve, ideally. You want to be like Adam and Eve, simple life. And um, you want to, uh, you know, I like to keep your indoor heating your and your indoor plumbing, okay? 
But other than that, be real simple. There's a lot of strength that comes from simplicity. We don't need most of these 99% of these modern chemicals and these other modern things. They actually weaken you in a lot of ways. So anyways, that's pretty much the point. I hope that was helpful. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers. You really dove deep into this molecular biology and helped us to really get a better understanding of all these underlying things that affect our body and our health and also affect whether or not we would get autoimmune disease. Green Warrior, please click like to show your appreciation for what Dr. Rogers shared with us today. We did have a question from Kerry during your presentation. Kerry wanted to know about the free radical. Is it is that an unpaired electron in the outer ring? Yes. And so what's happening is, like, for example, with the fluoride, it had seven electrons in its outer orbit, and really it should have eight to be stable. So that molecule will seek to obtain another electron in order to obtain an octet and stabilize its outer orbital. And the relevance is that fluoride, of all the molecules, if you look at the table, the periodic table of the elements, it has the highest what is called electronegativity. Electronegativity, what that means is it has the strongest desire to grab onto an electron, to steal it from something. In general, that's a good way to think of pathogens. They're not all the same, but in general, most pathogens, they want to steal an electron from something else. They steal it and they don't give it back. Okay, and fluoride is the most aggressive of all those pathogens to do that. And when it steals an electron, it damages the molecule it stole it from. So it just goes around randomly damaging things. It's a terrible thing. It should never be in our water. It should never be in our foods. It should never be in our medicines. But I guarantee you, it's very, very common in medications, for example, for treating brain disorders. The reason is, look at Prozac, it's called fluoxetine. The fluo, that is related to, it, it increases traversal of blood-brain barrier, okay? Because it decreases the polarity of the molecule, making it better able to pass through the lipid membranes that are part of the blood-brain barrier. Also the blood testicular barrier, the blood ovary barrier, the blood eye barrier. So it'll be in the fluoroquinolone antibiotics, for example. And it's in lots of neuropsychopharmacology drugs. So, but it's a brain toxin. Okay, great. It's put in there because it increases traversal of the blood-brain barrier. And then it gets in your brain and it'll potentially do damage. I don't like that idea. Mm. Yep, there's a lot of due diligence that we all need to do. You have a lot of fans that have come to watch you today, Dr. Rogers. But for those that aren't familiar with you, can you please tell us about what you do and how people can find you. Well, what basically happened was I had a pretty boring, lonely life through college, med school, and residency. Okay, I got, I got. In high school, I was, I had a great life. I was like the happiest person in the world. I was a wrestler. I was a great wrestler. Great family, girlfriend. Everything was perfect. Okay, but then I went far away because only one place after me offered me a scholarship after I got injured. And the reason I mentioned all that was. I was super studious. It was kind of like I was mad at myself for getting injured and ruining my life as an athlete. So I said, I'm going to become a great doctor or scientist someday. So I was totally studious. I won stacks of academic awards, first in my medical school class. But what happened was I hit my mid-30s and I'm like, my father's got heart disease. My mom's got cancer and I'm fat. What the heck happened? I'm supposed to be a great doctor and I can't help myself. I can't help my parents. What happened? And so then I started to read nutrition, epidemiology, and toxicology. I thought, well, maybe just nobody can do anything. Okay. Then I'm like, holy crap, all the information's right here, nutrition, epidemiology, and toxicology. I wish I had learned this, you know, younger. I could have saved my girlfriend's mother. I could have saved a lot of people. And I was a little pissed off about that. 
And um, so that's why I kind of have just gone with it because I see all this great information here and it's the best way to help people. I'm a little bored. I still work full time in conventional medicine, but I only use, I got lots and lots of IQ ability beyond that. So I like to do something useful with it. And so I also, I read all the papers and I'm like, gosh, you know, McDougal's the best doctor in the world. But I'm like, but I know tons of stuff he doesn't know. I'm like, I could be the best doctor in the world. I'm going to try to do that. Okay. I only got so much time in life. You've got you got your job, you got to make some money for your family. Then you got some obligations to your family. Then you got to sleep, and that's most of your time. Then you got a little time for a hobby. And so I said, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. That's my time. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to become the best doctor. And I thought I got advantages because I used to do it as a hobby. And because of that, I'm free. I can say whatever I want. Most doctors, you'll notice them, and most they're scared to ever say anything bad about a commercial product because when you when you when you badmouth a commercial product, you you get less views on the internet. The internet, it's not all open society. Okay, let me tell you something. You badmouth coffee, soy, any of this other crap, you get less views. I know because I've, I've looked at it. I've made thousands of videos. So what I've seen happen is my attitude is, look, I'm going to try to be the best in the world. I'm trying to catch Medugula. It's hard to catch Medugula because he's real smart and he's retired. He can read all the time, but I'm trying to catch him. Um, I know tons of stuff he doesn't, but he does know a lot of stuff I don't know either. So it's kind of a, a fair contest. But anyways, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, um, you know, I also have looked at healthcare, and I know that healthcare is it's messed up. It doesn't work because it's based on a lot of principles that can't work, okay? And I also think, I don't know if you want me to get into all the philosophy, but I, let me just put it this way. You have to value the individual a tremendous amount. That's why I believe you have to have a biblical worldview where you say man is created in the image of God, therefore he's part divine, entitled to you know respect, privacy, freedom, all these things. Because if you don't say that, you then label him in this atheistic Darwinist mindset, which is used in all the colleges, med schools, everywhere in the United States. What you're basically saying is he's simply a monkey that talks. He's a talking primate. And there's a problem with that because for open for heart disease, for example, if you put a stent into the coronaries, you get about $30,000. It's a lot of money, okay? If you do open heart surgery, the total billing is about $150,000, okay? If you treat him with pills, you get some money off him every day. You're going to end up getting a couple hundred thousand bucks, okay? So... If you teach him about the vegan diet, he can cure himself. You'll get maybe 1000 bucks if you have him come to your course for a couple of days or weeks, or you'll get nothing. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is anybody who runs a hospital, they never, ever want the patient to go low-fat vegan because the patient's cured. And they're cured of hypertension. They're cured of coronary artery disease. Very often, they're cured of impotence. They're cured of a lot of these eye diseases. They're cured of tons of things. A lot of times, their back pain goes away. So what I'm saying is, it's never, ever going to happen that conventional medicine is going to get better unless they adopt that worldview. And they're not going to. So that's why it's never going to get better. And that's why the persons on the Internet teaching you about health are the ones that can help you the, the most for all these Western chronic diseases, which is most diseases, which is the most common reason most people are sick, suffer, and die. So anyways, you know, it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Steve Alvey said, go with plants. <laughs> he just he just summed up your whole presentation in three words. <laughs> that was great. Well, I wanted to to tell those that aren't familiar with you that you do have a YouTube channel, Peter Rogers MD, and you've also authored many, many books. And I'll put a link to all those books in the show notes in case people want to dive deeper into the fascinating things that you have uh, shared. And Carrie said, the fact that Dr. Rogers is free to be honest means so much to me. Yes, it means a lot to all of us, and we do appreciate it. And to me, the fact that he is willing to take time out of his few hours of free time a day and spend it with us 
to help the green warriors learn more about this lifestyle and what they can do and how that they can help themselves because that's the most important thing. Like you said, Dr. Rogers, you have to help yourselves because nobody's going to be out there trying to help you. Green Warriors, please click like to show your appreciation for what Dr. Rogers shared with us today. And a big thank you to you, Dr. Rogers. For yeah, well, thanks. My pleasure. Yeah, I mean, you're sharing your expertise and you shed light on the crucial connection between lifestyle choices and autoimmune health. So Dr. Rogers, what's your final take home message for our green warriors about autoimmune disease? Well, I would say and part of it comes from what I would describe as an attitude, you know, like the typical person you recommend go vegan. They're like, Oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not ready for that. All this other stuff. And what I'm saying is the intelligent thing is to realize if you don't, you're screwed. Okay. I can tell you the vast majority of people, they age very poorly. It's sad. It's pathetic. It's just kind of awful. And they go to the conventional doctors, they get all these drugs and surgeries, you know, and, and they just crash and burn. It can't fix these diseases. Come on, it's obvious, okay? So what I'm saying is the proper attitude is, you mean there's something I can do? I'm not inevitably screwed. I don't have to be fat, sick, and stupid and chopped up. I'll do it. I'll do it. Thank you, God. That's the proper attitude. Yes, you're so right. And I think a lot more people are going to be on board to go 100% after hearing all the things that you shared with us today. Green Words, tell us what, what are you going to remember? Because there's so much that Dr. Rogers has shared with us today. So type in the comments what your takeaway is so people who are looking can learn some more about autoimmune disease. I also wanted to thank Just Tass Voice. You, she did the countdown and she did the promos and the thumbnails and she did the voiceovers. And she does so much to help our channel grow and to help people like you come to these wonderful presentations. Just has voice. Tell us who's coming up next. Are you struggling with food addictions or sabotaging thoughts on your journey to a whole food plant-based lifestyle? Marikita Solis, vegan empowerment coach, will provide the answers and guidance you need to overcome these challenges and thrive on this transformative path. Bring your questions on Wednesday, January 31st, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Be Green with Amy Live. I also wanted to share with all of you today that we recently had on uh, Chef Vicki Gretgatch, and she is promoting this cookbook that she made, and she's offering a free copy to one of our Green Warriors. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes as to how you can enter up to six times, six ways to win this book to be sent to you. And it's a wonderful book. And every recipe has uh, a picture. So I love cookbooks that have recipes with pictures in it. And that's going to be a great thing for all of you. So if you want to enter to win that, you can go ahead and go to the link that I show you. It's on my website, Be Green with Amy. Dot com, And I really wanted to thank the uh, Green Warriors today, your engagement and your thoughtful questions in the chat. They've been invaluable. And please stay tuned for more empowering discussions. Dr. Rogers is going to be back in a couple of weeks, and he'll be discussing some other interesting things about a plant-based lifestyle and how it can help you achieve more health in your life. And I also want to thank you because you all these things that you put in the chat and you share, this is what's helping the channel grow. And by that, I mean 
it's helping other people out there get more information about these empowering things to help them get well and get healthy. And thank you, Dr. Rogers. And I also wanted to, as a special thank you to you, the Green Warriors, for supporting this channel and being here today. Please go to my website, with, and it's uh, begreenwithamy.com and slash join, and I will send you five free recipes from me to you. So, Green Warriors, if you would like to join me and Dr. Rogers, because we are going to be doing the, our my tagline, which is be strong, be well, and be green, you can type that in the comments. And Dr. Rogers, if you want to join me in saying the last word green, we'll sign off with that. Are you ready, Dr. Rogers? Sure. Okay, until I see all of you again, remember, be strong, be well, and be, be green. green. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Rogers. Looking forward to having you back again soon. Now you can get five free whole food plant-based SOS free recipes from Be Green with Amy. Just click on the link in the show notes and Amy will send you five free recipes, motivational quotes, and more so you can be strong, be well, and be 